I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch presents the Santa Claus Christmas Extravaganza. I don't care about family and shopping malls, candy canes, or the carolers decking the balls. I don't care about what you say, Santa Claus. You're a bad brother breaking into people's garage. You got it wrong, cause I'm just another regular guy. Hey Pete! Hey Aaron! You knocked it out for me. Thanks, bud. It's my Christmas gift to you. Slightly less energy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Love to Watch. This is a themed movie podcast. We do a set of movies in a, in a month under a certain theme. And this week, we're well, doing... Hold on, you gotta do our whole thing. I, if we remember. Oh, yeah. And if we remember to, compare and contrast them. And if we remember to, we remember to say if we remember to compare and contrast them. <laughs> Some people have like a rubric or a script. I feel like it would help. I don't think you've ever said it before. I think you're doing that because I'm not feeling well. And and I appreciate it. I got the vibe. You're either like, Aaron, when there was only one foot set of footprints on the beach, <laughs> when there was only one track on the audio, that's what I was carrying you. I was about to reference the same thing. And when we're making the – and we start making references at the same time to the same thing, I think we need to just shut the podcast down. <laughs> well, that's why we're doing a podcast. <laughs> So we can just reflect our same ideas back at each other. Exactly. No one else will talk to us because everyone else (laughs) rolls their eyes. But in you, I found I found my Santa Claus who brings me presents of uh, similar thoughts back to me every every week. (laughs) Speaking of that, I genuinely feel like this is a movie that I want to talk about in a uh, excessive manner and no one I've ever met wants to talk about for more than 15 seconds. Tonight we're doing it for 15 hours. We're doing it for 15 hours and we're not just doing one movie. Let's go, before we announce what it is, so it is our Christmas spectacular. I was like, Peter, we're just having so much trouble coming up with Christmas specials to do. I know we announced it. I got an idea. Let's do the Santa Claus instead. I'm looking forward to watching it again with my daughter. She liked it last year. Like let's do it. I'm I we we haven't talked about Tim Allen. It feels like we've talked about Dean Kane. We've talked about uh Billy Zane. <laughs> and right there in there should be a Tim Allen. We haven't done it. And so what did Peter do? He sent me back a message. I see the little three dots. Boop 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 boop. And said, "If we're doing the Santa Claus, we're doing all three. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I feel like it would be inappropriate to not talk about how insane the third act of the third movie is uh, and how this movie series went to a trilogy that expands on the characters and the mythos and yeah. the lore. Every movie, just, it's like none of them are – neither of them are the, the sequels are a reboot, which is very weird. No, they never bring uh, no. in like a new hot Santa to replace the old one. They never rehash the same plot. <laughs> They bring uh, they bring an older, hotter Santa. <laughs> older, colder Santa because of Jack Frost. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely Jack Frost. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a weird, super weird series. It feels like it could have been solved in one movie if someone had just read the contract through at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to talk about whether yeah. or not this contract is legally binding and who enforces it. Why the North Pole is binding people's souls to it to perform this labor. Yeah. If Santa decides to not be Santa. The only way to quit is to reset time. But we're not there yet. We are going to get into the first Santa Claus. Before we do that, let's talk about the 
oh, 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 in the room. Oh, 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 oh. This is going to be very good as I am recovering from having a very sore throat and a cold. So I don't know if my. You're going to have to pipe in some really good oh, oh, oh's for me. <laughs> There's a 14 minute supercut of every. Oh, I, I saw that. Yeah. I, I got 30 seconds in before I felt like my brain was melting. <laughs> I was like, I can definitely get past like five, ten minutes. And I got like three minutes in and I was like, yeah, exactly. My brain is melting. I don't think I can do it anymore. These movies are, first and foremost, vehicles for Tim Allen. Well, especially the first one. Because the first one has a lot of like the more power and he sets fire to a turkey. And he does a lot of ho, ho, ho. That kind of stuff in it. And then by the second and third, he's just kind of Santa. The third one really is like, why is he even in this movie anymore? (laughs) Uh, But we'll get it. We'll get into that. But we do need to talk about Tim Allen because Tim Allen is an extremely divisive figure. I think he is the reason why when we said we were doing this, everyone that we knew that meant commented on our post was like, oh, torturing yourselves for the holidays. huh?" And we don't feel that way. Like, I like the first one. I think there's a lot of the second one that is good. And the third one is a mistake uh, that has been unleashed on this earth uh, by demons. Uh, but <laughs> the third one, the, the third one is like an hour of you just wondering when this Christmas screensaver is going to become a movie, and then uh, eventually, it really is a screensaver. Like, we'll and talk then it becomes uh, the plot of Looper. Yeah, uh, or it's a Wonderful Life a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, it's a wonderful life, but if they decide to let someone die at the end. Yeah. Uh, it really we'll makes it. his choice to become Santa Claus. So, but let's talk about Tim Allen. Cause, so, Tim Allen is a very uh, reviled figure, I feel like. He's not, like, actively hated, but he is someone who people are like, he's not funny and he's not good. And here's what I'm here – what I'm here to say is that I think Tim Allen is good. I don't think he's in many good – movies or TV shows because I th- he just they never quite figured him out but when they do figure him out which I think is the first Santa Claus movie I think it's the all the parts on earth or not at the North Pole in the second Santa Claus movie and stuff like Galaxy Quest and even stuff like Big Trouble that are not that good movies I think when they figure him out he's just He's like he's like the quintessential '90s dad, but still like charming, and a home improvement too. Like home improvement is not that good of a show, but like they they tapped into something that I think works. It wasn't always the um, I think the more power and all that nonsense and whatever else. It was like, you know it was a hacky yeah, like 90s. macho yeah uh, showiness that that like. Yeah, that, that macho braggadocio shit where it's like being a man is about being a caveman and yeah. doing power tools and chopping wood. And I'm supposed to be proud of all this like testosterone pumping through my veins like that shit yeah. is exhausting. Yeah. And it was no, it was never the best part about that show. When that show was good, it was about like he was very good at being, I think, like like my dad. My dad had no interest in power tools and fixing things, but, you know, it was that I am learning to be a parent on the spot and I'm a hard ass and I try to do fun things and then I get frustrated really quickly. And, like, he just reminds me of a baby boomer dad and there's a charm in there. Um, I think I think his romance in the second one actually works really well, um, but he does legitimately seem like a parent and he then he's like – 
he's funny occasionally in the way that dads sometimes hit on funny jokes, right? Like, he's not always funny. Um, and a lot of times the joke is about how out of touch or how wrong he is. That's Galaxy Quest in a nutshell. But, like, I think he's good in that. And it doesn't – he's actually one of the few celebrities, the, the fact that he's, like, a conservative and all that bullshit. And, like, his big thing about they canceled – Last man standing because they can't take conservatives in Hollywood. He's one of the few people that doesn't bother me with. And here's why. I think in real life, he is just a big dummy. He's like a big dummy, like my own dad, <laughs> who thinks all the wrong things. But he's never like offensive. He's not like a, like some, like a Breitbart type person or anything like that. He just like – he says he's a Republican – and he's a conservative, and like, if you probably were to actually talk to him about anything, he'd be like, "Yeah, I'm fine with gay marriage, and well, yeah, abortion should be legal." And he's like, "But Reagan, like, he just feels like a big dummy who probably barely pays attention to politics and just likes to cast himself as an outsider." And like, because of that, there is something um, harmless about his conservatism that I I get why some people would go, "There's there's nothing harmless about any conservatism right now," and I would. general agree with you but like i don't know for some reason it doesn't ruin my enjoyment of his movies yeah it kind of reminds me of my dad in a sense which my dad is not a dummy but like it reminds me of my dad growing up where like he would make mistakes and be like "Uh, i fucked up sorry um because on home improvement that was his arc every episode (laughs) because he had to go talk to wilson yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, that was the arc because otherwise otherwise wilson was essentially the mr feeney of home improvement if you've never seen it and if you've never seen boy meets world i have no reference point um i guess praying to god i don't know (laughs) um (laughs) he would fuck up he'd have to go talk to wilson or his wife would give him a slap on the slap on the ass and be like yeah go fix this thing with your kids or fix this thing with me that was what was charming about the show is because like under all that that macho bullshit and all that like i'm just a dumb dad just figuring it out the kids i'll be fine he genuinely cared as a father yeah and and that sincerity and that like will to um want to make things better was what made home improvement i think one of the things that made him home improvement a massive success um, yeah because you you always you bought him as both the like dummy just goofing around and being proud of being a dummy and you also bought him as the dad being like well there's a lot of shit i don't know i'm sorry and now i know it let me try and fix this as best as i can as like with my crude tools tim allen in real life is kind of a dummy but i don't think tim (laughs) taylor or the santa claus scott calvin scott calvin like are like dummy dummies like scott calvin's a successful executive like he clearly has some level of business acumen and he was good enough on home improvement to like have his own television show and assumingly he paid bills and he he could build that car remember that mustang they were working on for how many seasons in the garage Mm -hmm. like he was good at things it wasn't that he was dumb it was that he was emotionally unintelligent he as a result hurt people's feelings, didn't take other people's feelings into consideration and all these other things. And like that for, for kids my age or people my age, that's like the exact baby boomer dads, right? Like they, they were, they were kind of taught like feelings are dumb. And then in the eighties and nineties, it became like, Hey, actually you have to have feelings and you can't just be this asshole. So I do think as they transitioned into being more in touch with their feelings, they turned out a lot of times like Tim Taylor on Home Improvement, 
where you sometimes had to say it to them a lot of times for them to get it, but they were listening if you spoke loud enough or a big enough comedic set piece occurred. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, that's And I think it is good to ground why we're doing this series because we're not doing it just because we're like, Tim Allen, he's an easy target. Uh, because of a Republican in Hollywood, we have to take him down. Um, no. No, it's not that we think he's an easy target. It's that it's genuinely fascinating to talk about Tim Allen, whose star didn't fade because he said a bunch of offensive bullshit or because he he was never funny. So and then everybody caught on like his star faded because he was at the peak. Home Improvement was one of the biggest shows on TV. There's a reason why he had a bunch of movie vehicles. Yeah. But he just sort of settled into this like selling out arenas for a stand up. Anytime he says something in the news, people pick up on it. He will always be on TV in some capacity. He sort of settled into this middling fame that I think he's pretty comfortable with as an older dude who doesn't want to like hold the king spot anymore. And that like makes these movies more charming to me because like it's like, hey, yeah, it's just kind of like an older comedian. He kind of, you know, he he was he had really good comic timing. He was pretty funny back in the day. Like, yeah, he's kind of hacky, but like he works within the capacity of what we need him to do in these Santa Claus movies. And that's why I wanted to talk about him as uh, as, as disreputable as, you know, kids movies are, particularly Christmas kids movies. Uh, I think it's fun to talk about this kind of stuff because no one else wants to talk about it with this kind of sincerity. Yeah, and I again, I think he is genuinely good in these first two Santa Claus movies, which I also think are good movies. Uh, I think, I mean, people talk about Galaxy Quest. He's amazing in Galaxy He's Quest. So, like super good in Galaxy like, Quest. Very I, I just think that the problem was is that he was always a PG act, and then the problem with PG acts or PG-13 type movie stars is that you tend to go to these lowest common denominator movies. So, like, oh, Joe Somebody. Oh, The Shaggy Dog. Oh, Zoom. These are shitty scripts by hacky directors. Uh, but we need a family-friendly star who will get sell tickets, and that was Tim Allen. And the problem with that is if you make too many shitty Tim Allen vehicles to for people to buy tickets, uh, and that's the only thing he's getting signed up for, uh, you end up having people that don't want to like fool me twice or three times or whatever else I'm out of the Tim Allen business. And so he stopped selling tickets and he doesn't get to work. But I think he could have remained a movie star if a uh, directors figured out how to use them like they do in the good examples or B like he just seems, I don't know if he would do it, but he seems primed for a Tarantino type thing where he plays a supporting actor in like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie or something like that. He kind of got it. it. It didn't blow up that way and it didn't help his career that way or really pivot him. But his performance in Red Belt. I, I don't even know what that is. Red Belt is this really awesome like MMA drama uh, written by David Mamet. And it's uh, oh. and uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, I believe, is the lead. 
And Tim Allen does that, like, that thing that you were talking about. It's just that, that mo- nobody's heard of that movie. Clearly. And, <laughs> and it's, like, this cool little role where he's kind of, like, acknowledging his fated star. And he's he's kind of uh, gruff and pissed off in a way you've never seen him before. And, yeah, but it, it, he needs another thing like that. Yeah, some something a little bigger. Because I think he would Something do that well. actually breaks through, I think. He, he is someone that even when the material is bad, he's extremely watchable, which is what makes movie stars like you're like i enjoy being in his presence in a weird way sometimes despite myself because the movie's not good so that's like that's something that almost no percentage of the american public or actors have just like i like being in this person's presence there's something about him there's a there's a good vehicle to be found through that uh the other thing i want to talk about is the budgets on these movies and how much they (laughs) grossed before we actually get into the plots and the story and stuff because peter i did not know what the budgets and how much they made at the box office were before this i assumed they were successes but it's insane what happened with uh with with those so the first movie makes sense right 1994 home improvements new they're testing uh-huh. the water i also think not just the budgets but i think the uh these movies themselves kind of track uh where disney was between 94 and 2006 like 1994, like, hey, we got some new heat on us. Let's get some big stars. We own a television uh, network. Uh, <laughs> Tim Allen's our biggest guy. Let's try Let's try some new stuff, right? That's 1994. That's Santa Claus. 2002 is like, all right, I think we're just going to do, like, kid-friendly stuff. Like, oh, no edge whatsoever. Uh, okay, yeah, let's do Santa Claus 2. Mostly North Pole. We'll have other fairy creatures. Great, sure. And then 2006, Disney's like, I think we're going to go bankrupt. We just only put out shit. Pixar's leaving us. Like, I don't know this. Uh, and then, of course, they kind of revital. They they flipped the script, as they say, uh, after that. But 2006 really was the nadir of Disney. And uh, the escape clause matches that. But then the budgets. Okay. So the first Santa Claus, $22 million, Pretty respectable. They're testing the waters. It grosses $180 million worldwide. So first one, $22 million, makes $189 million worldwide. Pretty good. Uh, second one, what do you think the budget is? I just think retaining uh, retaining Tim Allen and like all those sets and shit have to be expensive. I'm going to say it was like $35 million. $65 million. That's a big fucking jump for how the second <laughs> one kind of looks like a TV movie. Yeah. Well, the director went on to only do Hallmark movies, which is exactly what two and three look like. He directed both. Very soft focus, very overlit. Yeah, it feels not. It feels like a TV movie, which is he found his home later on. Uh, great. Good for him. Uh, okay. So 65 million, it grosses 180 million. So it it, it basically grosses the same as the first one worldwide, <laughs> uh, but with inflation and everything else. So the third one, but still good, like triple its budget. It's still Even though it had a sixty-five fucking million dollar budget, which would be like a hundred million dollars today, and Number- that's and Disney likes that because that's fodder for ABC Family and the Disney Channel and stuff around the sure. holidays. Like they like having assets like that. So three years. So there's uh, there's eight years between the first and the second. Only four years between the second and third. What do you think the budget of the third one was? Well, it's a lot shorter. 70 million? 12 million dollars. Okay, so they really... It made 110 million dollars at the worldwide box office. That's crazy. It's crazy that it made money. Have you ever heard of a 
big budget like Disney franchise or any franchise that stays with the same company, the second movie is a success, like a, a big success. And then for the third movie where you retain star and director, the budget is one sixth of the previous movie. I don't even know how I would go about looking this up, but I almost guarantee that is the first time in movie history that's ever happened. And 12 million almost feels like they were like... 12 million is less than the first one by almost half. That feels almost like Disney was like, yeah, you can make your movie, but for 12 million. (laughs) And then they were like, sure, we'll make it. I understand why they would be like, okay, let's lower the budget. But like, that's literally half of what the original budget is if they were made in the same year. Yeah. No, that's insane. Like, I get it. Like, 65 was too much. You're going to get 30. 12? Yeah, that's <laughs> like, insane. That is crazy. It shows, too. The third one is the third one is the one that has the um, cheapest uh, production value, and it's the one where there's no razzle-dazzle. It is the gaudiest, ugliest movie I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, I think you forgot about a little movie called The Grinch You Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. That, I, at least they built sets. Like, yeah, that's this true. movie is interminable because – so I saw – I guess I saw this whole movie. I thought I had not. Um, maybe because I watched it and was like, that can't be all there is. I must have turned it off early. Uh, but, no, apparently I have seen this whole movie before and it came rushing back to me as I watched it this time. The third one, I didn't notice this the first time, does something I've never seen before in a movie, let alone like a live action. I guess I have seen it before in a very specific example like – uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons. Uh, but so like there'll be Tim Allen and the rest of the uh, what legendary creatures, like some fucking Magic the Gathering card. <laughs> um, that when they're like when they're, anyone's doing anything at the North Pole, it is so difficult to look at. And I realized why it's difficult to look at is that as people are having conversations behind them is the workshop and the workshop never stops bustling. Right? There's people moving stuff. And I realized this time why it was so frustrating to watch because I actually caught them. They are not in the room with any of these things. It's all green screen. And you can tell, especially because the height is sometimes way off, of like elves doing stuff behind them. But it's like Tom and Jerry. So you'll be watching and these two elves will walk across the frame holding a package And then you'll see it two more times as the scene goes on in the exact same thing. Like, they are showing, like, a fucking repeating background behind all the actors doing everything on green screen. The scale is all off. Like, you you realize watching it, like, there's just too much motion going on all the time. It's it's too much. Between that and the scale and the fact that you're seeing stuff over and over, it is like – it is a – I wouldn't say this about most movies, including How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It is truly a punishment for your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the second and third ones are both overlit, which is just a product of the director thinking that a kid's movie needs to be just bright and shiny in, in every moment, no shadows. The second movie at least has the production value, I think, to back it up, even though yeah. that production value is... Ugly as shit. 
It's very gaudy, very overdesigned. All of them, are, all three of them, are kind of overdesigned, and the gaudy. I think the first one is good. They're all overdesigned and way too busy, and they're but but it's on purpose, which is because kids like that crazy stimulation. It's that it's that thing that everyone makes fun of George Lucas for saying, like the frame is just packed with information. Like, but kids genuinely do like that. They like the idea that this movie is just like an explosion happening in their eyes, even though for, to us we're just like. What visual information are you communicating by having 50 extras hammering toys in the background? Or it, it, it reminds me of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, though, where I really do kind of respect the level of detail that they go into. In The Grinch, they have a fucking, like, who blender that's sitting on a who countertop. And, I, and there's a shot where Grinch is probably breaking into someone's house and it's like a longer shot. Maybe it's when Sidney Lou who confronts him. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in the scene because I'm sitting staring at the design detail going, some production designer had to sit and make a goofy looking who blender and put it on the countertop to sit in shadow and no one will ever see it because of how bright the colors are in this scene and how much shit is going on in the frame. Yeah, but at least they designed all that shit, which I think is true of the second one, too. Like, it's yeah. real people in a real set, and there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of extras. There's a lot of physical objects that are, are yeah. being interacted with. The balls to just show a fucking screensaver in the background that repeats after a little bit is pretty high. And again, that's why I think it just felt so off, because... It's not to scale. Like, say what you will about the Star Wars movies, and there's a lot to say. Like, they did the actors in blue screen and then animated around that because everything's moving through the frame and everything else. This, they clearly just, like, put something on in the background. Yeah, yeah. They There's no depth. There's no anything. The CGI can very often, when it's, it's a fully created object that is fantastical and has no room to hide within shadows or, you know, actual sets uh, when it's just an object floating in space and it's been and it's a fantastical object. It very often has nothing to hide in and it just ages and ages and ages. And, th and these movies, as they go on, they rely more and more on CG, probably probably because of budget, but also probably because of shorter production schedules. Um, which which is also a product of budget, obviously, but like shorter production schedules, like let's get Tim Allen in for his 30 days and then let's get him the fuck out. The other thing that really changes between them is what Disney thought kids were, right? So I used to read Disney Adventures magazine in the early 90s, which was like this uh, this thing that promoted Disney stuff, but also – was very concerned with seeing hip and cool, right? They So, they had, like, interviews with, with shows that it wasn't even aware of, like, Beverly Hills 90210, 90210 and Blossom and had, like, what's in, what's out. Like, it was targeted to, like, nine, ten-year-olds. Uh, and But it was really trying to be this idea of we're cool. You look at, like, the Disney Afternoon and, like, Max from Goof Troop and Huey, Louie, and Dewey and all these people, like, they were supposed to be, like, barely edgy, but that's still what they were going for. Kids who liked to skate knew what uh, what music besides, like, kid bops was. Like, that's who Disney was marketing to. By 2002, you very much see in the movie that they were, like, I, I think they were marketing to the same age, but they were no longer concerned with, like, trying to be, like, 90s hip. And edgy, they were like, 
relying more on fart jokes. And I think that this in a microcosm is Comet, right? Like Comet in the first Santa Claus is too cool for school. He just kind of rolls his eyes, essentially rolls his reindeer horns at Scott Calvin to communicate. It's supposed to be like somewhat plausible in terms of it's supposed to be like, yes, this is a real animal that has magical powers, but it also has like, you know, centuries of intelligence within him, but he's not a cartoon character. No, but his, his way of communicating his whole attitude is like, Oh, this stupid asshole, which is like, that's like, 10-year-old 90s hip, right? Yeah. Is like, I'm a little too cool for this, but whatever. And then by fucking 2002 with Santa Claus 2, Comet talks like a fucking baby and farts and gets fat. Yeah, and then there's also a baby, Jet, I believe, which is like one of the new reindeer. Yeah. It was like, like, I believe, almost almost entirely CGI. Chet. Did you say Jet Chet? or Chet? I, Chet. Is it, is it Chet? I it's thought it was Chet. Jet. No, it's Chet. Oh. He's all CGI and he's like, because there's a whole thing where he's supposed to be this like baby making these like uh, little kid sounds, but like little kid cartoon characters. And it's incredibly obnoxious. It is weird, like the way that all of these markets shifted to either. I don't know if they shifted to younger kids or what they were going for. We I think we talked about this in something recently where like Sesame Street is another good example. Like the the point of view characters were uh Grover and Big Bird, these people that were supposed to be like six, seven years old, and then as the nineties gave way to two thousands, it all became all about Elmo, who like is supposed to be like three or four years old. And there was just this huge like change from appealing to like tweens and then trying to appeal to either tweens with childish sensibilities or just just straight children just straight up children not yeah. straight not just straight children <laughs> but just straight up children like yes so like yes. forget trying to uh, court these 10 11 year old they're all doing you know fucking meth and listening to you know <laughs> nelly uh, or some shit like we're only we're going straight for five and six year old i i think that's what must have happened which sucks because there essentially is no there when that market disappeared there essentially was only baby stuff or only like teenage stuff that's true and it created a scenario uh especially like i was a kid uh of the 90s and it did create a scenario where from the late 90s going into the early 2000s i felt like no material was for me so i had to just start watching teenager and adult stuff yeah and i imagine the next generation it was even worse because yeah everything got kind of kiddified or edgified and uh usually the edification of stuff you already liked was pretty uh embarrassing yeah having all these shows about bmx bullshit (laughs) yeah like there was a lot of shit that uh that was just kind of tossed in your face like, well, you're a teenager, so you must like this. And it, and it just always missed the mark um, for yeah. me as a 9 to 13-year-old. Yeah, it really felt like when growing up in the in the late 80s, early 90s, like it felt like most of the kid entertainment was aimed square at. And then when my brothers grew up, it was like they graduated from Barney to like watching – like Disney sitcoms that I would have watched when I was like ten or eleven. Like there just yeah. there just wasn't that like that that marketing to ages like five through nine that there was so heavily when I was that age. Yeah. Well and there's not now either. Like yeah. 
it is it is Paw Patrol or it is like uh, superhero stuff. That's like it was great. Like it, a lot of it's really good. And my daughter loves it. But there there was a phase for me between Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street and like Batman the Animated Series, and now there's not. That, yeah. That's the equivalent. There's a few key agreements that you make with a movie like The Santa Claus. One, you're going to be okay with sometimes cringy amounts of sweetness. And that's kind of an agreement. That's kind of your deal with all Christmas movies. All Christmas movies that aren't targeting adults, basically. And even ones targeting adults will have that as well. This sort of like sweet sentimentality with no nuance. Like that's just something you agree to. And it's something that I honestly look for this time of year because like it's comforting. and It's nice. And it helps me actually believe that there's a reason why like we go volunteer places or donate money or whatever the fuck you do this time of year to feel like it is the time of giving. Right. and the another give is that you're like, okay, some jokes are not going to be for you because you're not a child. And when you watch this movie as a child, some jokes were not for you. This is supposed to be, this is one of those, the first movie especially is supposed to be one of those movies where it's like some jokes are for kids, some jokes are for adults. Uh, it's trying to span in a whole family. Yeah. And that kidification of content kind of made it so it was like, this is some shit you put on so that you can go clean your kitchen or cook dinner or fucking do anything. I don't know. Screw around on your phone, I guess, a few years later. Um, but this is something that like you don't need to watch. You just need your kid to watch. Uh, and that happened by, I think, the third movie starts to show signs of it where it, it starts to become this sort of like placid object. And that makes the third act weirdness so much more shocking. So let's get, yeah, let's get into the plot of the movies. I'm going to do a recap of all three movies and I'll, yeah. I'll put a little breaker in between. Yeah. And uh, we're not going to talk about these as much as individual objects unless we're comparing and contrasting how the series went wrong. Uh, but I'd like to talk about them as like sort of an experience of watching all three of them together. And like we, like we said, the first one, is a very different movie from the third one in terms of content, but they do form an actual trilogy of, of Scott Kelvin's character progress. Yeah. I know more now from these movies about Scott Kelvin than I probably know about Jesus Christ because they really get into like, well, this is who he was before. Well, Scott Kelvin's in the real, Peter. Well, Scott Kelvin's <laughs> real, obviously. Um, we have documentation from when he was alive and through these, <laughs> through these tapes and histories. Uh, do you want to talk about the Santa Claus trilogy? Let's talk about the Holy Trilogy. <laughs> uh, the Santa Claus. I'm Fat Daddy. I'm Santa Claus. Woo, yeah. I'm Fat Daddy. I pack my sleigh with goodies and toys. You know I'm on so, my Peter, way. I don't know about you, but before we get into it, I think we should let people know that. Um, so you can watch these movies uh, in order one, two, three. Uh, but I actually prefer the uh, machete order, or as it's called in this case, the mistletoe order, where you where you watch. One, two, and then don't watch three. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend people watch three just to witness a couple things about it. The last half hour is great. Martin Short is always fun. 
Oof. We have and a very differing opinion on Martin Short in general. Yeah, I forgot that's about that. probably going to scuttle this podcast, but it's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Okay, here, I'll tell you what. We'll do We'll do 30 seconds on each one. I will do my best. No, Santa Claus Trilogy. Just Scott Calvin is a exec at a uh, toy company. And he's a divorced father. He's got a little son, Charlie, <laughs> and his wife, and is is now remarried to a new husband who's like a psychologist. And he's very like new yeah. age and very much doesn't want Charlie to believe in Santa Claus because he thinks lying to your children is unhealthy. Thinks that like all believing in fantasy is unhealthy. Uh, yeah. Scott Calvin. If the if the nineties were about one thing, it's about getting divorced and putting your career over your kids. <laughs> And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff in this movie that I think is supposed to be like heroic, but then as an adult, I'm like, hey, why are you arguing with your uh, ex-wife in front of your child about Santa Claus? Not healthy. Okay. So We're that's the thing seconds. that happens. And uh, so Scott Calvin gets custody of his son for an evening, Christmas evening. Uh, Christmas Eve, as I like to call it. Jesus and Christ. <laughs> no. It's got to go quicker. No, we're, I'm going as fast as I can. You're making commentary. Just get the plot <laughs> out quick. We'll have a whole episode. <laughs> so so uh, Scott Calvin hears uh, a, you know, a, something on the roof. All the creatures yeah, are I know. stirring, not even a mouse. Jesus Christ. Uh, Scott Calvin hears something Christmas. on the roof. He goes outside and he sees Santa Claus and he's like, hey, asshole, get off my roof. And Santa Claus falls to his death. Uh, Scott Calvin inadvertently manslaughters Santa Claus. And then, of course, he turns around talking to Charlie. He's like, I don't know what happened. And, of course, he's like, hey, where'd that guy go? And there's just pants and a jacket. Jesus Santa Christ. Claus, pants You're still in the first 20 minutes of this movie. And, and all of a sudden, puts on the pants, puts on the jacket, as somebody would, I guess. You're describing the individual clothing he puts on. Putting on the Santa clothes makes him Santa. So he goes up on the roof. There's reindeer and a sled and the bag and everything. And he suddenly begrudgingly has to accept the crown of Santa Claus. I guess the hat of Santa Claus, whatever you call it. Um, he, uh, he performs his duty and then sort of on autopilot, he gets taken to North Pole where he gets introduced to a very pissed off elf, uh, David Krumholtz, who tells him all the rules and that he is now cursed to be Santa Claus. And so Scott Calvin's like, oh, that sucks. So then the entire middle section of the movie is him uh, gaining weight like Santa Claus. He can't keep his beard shaved down. Uh, he's got an insatiable hunger. Lots of children going up to him, like recognizing him as Santa Claus. At the same time, he's trying to sort of maintain his relationship with his son, who's now talking his ass off about Santa Claus being uh, a real thing. Uh, Charlie will not shut the fuck up about Santa Claus. Scott Calvin's ex-wife is using that as a wedge between them to say, like, uh, Charlie is now deluded, yada, yada. Scott Calvin essentially loses uh, custody of Charlie, and uh, we come to Christmas night where Scott Calvin is, is – it's his time to deliver presents for the second time, and he uh, starts – Performing his duties as Santa Claus, he reunites with his son. He gets his child, his uh, his wife and uh, his his wife's new husband on his team. He shows a bunch of people that Santa Claus is real, and uh, flies off presumably for uh, the next Christmas. Okay, uh, so that's Santa I'm, Claus one. That's Santa Claus one. I'm gonna do two. It's an origin story of Santa Claus yeah. in a modern day, unlike Saving Christmas. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. so, Santa Claus 2. It's eight years later. Uh, Scott Calvin just is Santa Claus now. He quit his toy executive job. Uh, everything's cool. Uh, his son Charlie's causing problems uh, because his uh, principal's a real dick. Uh, He's being a real Bart Simpson. Real Bart Simpson. He's spray painting everything. Says, don't have a cow, man. He has a skateboard. <laughs> sister named Maggie. Um, so, damn it. Now I'm getting <laughs> into jokes. All right. I just got to do plot, 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 plot. Okay. They find out. Plot, holy plot, shit. Plot, there's plot, a... Plot. Plot, 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 plot. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a secondary clause that says he has to get married uh, to a woman. Oh, well, we can unpack that hey, later. Hey, did you say a secondary clause? Like what, you know, a bear has? Clause? Secondary clause. Huh. Can you describe what letter that word ends in? An E? Yeah. It's not like Santa Claus with an S at the end. It's Santa Claus with an E at the end. Thus, the pun of the series. And also, why many, many millennial children think that Santa Claus is spelled with an E at the end. Sure. Yeah. Damn That's, millennials. It is also true of me. For a bunch of years, I thought Santa Claus had an E at the end because of this fucking movie. Uh, yeah. It's the original German. Uh, so. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. So, Scott Kelly found out, hey, he's got to get married. Or else, uh, by Christmas, or else he's not Santa Claus anymore, and they're like, oh, no. So, he ends up falling in love with Elizabeth Banks, shows her, goes, loses all of his stuff because he's de-transmorgifying uh, de into Santa, to not Santa Claus, so he becomes attractive to Tim Allen again. And he woos uh, the principal, shows her the magic of Christmas, but also, secondary plot, uh, while well, he because he needed to leave someone in charge of the North Pole so that the elves wouldn't suspect anything, he made a clone toy of himself that becomes a fascist and decides to really take the letter of the law into account when it comes to the naughty and nice lists. So if anyone ever does anything wrong, they only get coal, which is all kids. He is a straight up Santa Mussolini. He's wearing like <laughs> he's wearing like a fucking beret yeah. and black Santa costume with like sashes and laurels and all that shit dictators wear yeah i think it derails the movie entirely however i do kind of enjoy tim allen's uh take on the character as a unbridled drunk Um, (laughs) tim allen's take on mussolini it is kind of funny he'll never get another chance no he will not uh, can you imagine if they're like, hey, they're making a World War II biopic? Tim Allen's Mussolini? <laughs> <laughs> they let Mike Myers be Winston Churchill. So. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so anyway, so they the last half hour of this movie, he needs to find a way to get back to the North Pole because he used up all his magic to woo Elizabeth Mitchell and stop Mussolini and save Christmas, which they do. And then the third movie continues the arc where Santa has knocked up Elizabeth Mitchell, Mrs. Claus, and uh, she is Hold telling on. this story. Let's pause here for a sec. Can we talk about, just really quick before we get a third plot, Santa Claus 3 starts with a little uh, opening scene so it can tell the story in flashback. It's a framing that, device. No, it's not a framing device because a framing device goes back to it. And this movie never goes back to it. No, it goes back to it at the end because they and then everybody show they uh, all the kids get to see the baby and Santa Claus comes into the classroom at the end. Did you pass out at some point? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't remember that part at all. And I that's even watched the last the thing that happens for the credits. You watch the bloopies. I did watch the bloopies, but that doesn't happen in the classroom. Aren't they just waiting? Because no, Elizabeth Mitch is the classroom the story. Okay. Anyways, that was clearly <laughs> added because Abigail Breslin. Was just off a little uh, Miss Sunshine the year before. 
And she's only in that part, so that was clearly added because they're like, we can put Abigail Breslin above the titles, which they do. Um, yeah. And she's only in that part. So, uh, real Anyways, quick, real quick, uh, you already said Abigail Breslin was in Little Miss Sunshine. What other actor from Santa Claus 3 is also in Little Miss Sunshine? Uh, Paul Dano? <laughs> no, Alan Alda. Oh, yeah, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin. Yeah, yeah whatever. Old white dude. So first you try to go, oh, you're forgetting someone. And then you said the wrong old white dude. <laughs> and then you're like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Everyone can be smart in their own way, Aaron. They wouldn't be offended by me switching them up, right? They seem Quick, what's guys. the best Alan Arkin role? Alan Arkin role. I don't know. Uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross is like an easy pick, right? Is he in Glengarry Glenn Ross? Yeah. He's like one of the old dudes. He's like, he's like I just can't keep up. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's like, I can't keep uh, up. No, the psychologist in Gross Point Blank. Oh, that is a good one. Gross Point yeah. Blank is a weird uh, movie that everyone has forgotten has like some of the best performances of its comic comic. Yeah, actors. we we need to we need to figure out a comedy month where we do that because uh, I love that movie. Yeah, for can't sure. go home again, but at least some shot. It'd be fun to do a hit a hitman month where we do like uh, Les Samurai that and then two other ones that are kind of in between those two poles. Do like Femme Nikita. We could do La Femme Nikita. It's a good movie. I prefer yeah. Leon, but... Let's just do all of them. Luke, Let's do all Luke of them. Besson really had a, had a niche there for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, movies where he could uh, pick up a member of the cast yeah, and let's, date them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... let's, let's move past. <laughs> so, <laughs> just a lot to bite off in this Santa Claus episode. So, not, so Santa Claus not we're talking three. about. Santa Claus 3. <laughs> How do you D? Uh, Santa Claus 3 uh, <laughs> returns to the legendary... The legendary council has returned. Uh, and they're trying to kick out a guy... Named Jack Frost. I didn't mention the council. Oh, so the legendary uh, council from the second film returns in the third one. That's uh, who do we got? The Easter Bunny, Cupid, Mother Nature, Tooth Fairy, Father Time, Tooth Fairy. They're all. Uh, oh, I think all of them are played by stuff. real people, like uh, you know, considerable actors. Yeah, like there's Peter- no fake people. In the cast. <laughs> no they're one's animated by, suddenly. You know what I mean. They're all played. I think they're all played. Yeah, by they're like all a, like names. A, yeah, actors Boyle. of consideration. Uh, isn't Aisha Tyler Mother Nature? Yep. Kevin Dunn is Cupid. Kevin Pollock. Kevin Pollock, yeah. Father Time is Peter Boyle, who is the asshole boss in the first movie, and then he comes back as a different character in the second one and the third one uh, as, as Father Time. This is the last movie he that was released when he was alive, too. Wow. Good for him. Going out with a bang. Yeah. Uh, so they're all they're all like Michael Dorn. <laughs> Don't forget yes. Worf. Don't forget can't, Worf. Can't forget Worf. And uh, whoever the guy from Spin City plays the Easter Bunny. Art Lafleur is another like com- like character actor, really fun character actor who plays the Tooth Fairy. But yeah, they're all real names, whatever. And then a new addition to the the Council of Legendary Figures is the least funny three amigo. Oh, shut the fuck up. Martin... Sh- you, wait, hold on. You don't think he's the least funny three amigo at the No, Chevy least? Chase is the least f- funny <sighs> three amigo. You are so wrong. I mean, it's, all right. Steve Martin's top, obviously. Yeah. Listen, I love Christmas Vacation. I love other Chevy Chase stuff. I love Fletch. Yeah. Chevy Chase has been in more good movies than Martin Short. Name a good Martin Short movie. That is good because of Martin Short. Uh, Father of the Bride? It's good because of Martin Short? I want it. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, it's good because His of offensive gay stereotype character. <laughs> that's your best. That's your favorite part of Father the Bride. <laughs> I want to say Mason. <laughs> okay, that's the best. You're right. That's the best one. 
<laughs> but that's but the best part of that movie is Charles Grodin, not Martin Short. Okay, okay. Anyways, so well, yeah, Martin I'm Short. I'm just saying, if, you, if Martin Short's so good, why what? can't you name a movie you like him in? Because I like him as a stand-up, and I like him on SCTV, so and I like him in bit roles. I like him in Inherent. He's good Vice. on SCTV. I like him as Jiminy Glick. Jiminy Glick's great. Ugh. <laughs> Aren't fat people funny? <laughs> <laughs> No, he's funny because he's a vile, vile person. Oh, my God. I, <laughs> I do right. not care for I think Glick. I think this podcast is not going to be able to continue unless you tell me you love Martin Short. I'm sure he's a very nice man. I saw him do stand-up and hated every minute of it. Hmm. And I've never liked him all that much to huh. begin with. Hmm. I just don't think he's funny. Huh. Well, Martin Short... Uh, second best person in the Three Amigos. Uh, Martin Short in this movie proving Aaron's point wildly at every turn. <laughs> uh, Martin Short is uh as Jack Frost, a thankless role, I might add. Uh, he's a, playing Michael Keaton. who is who is essentially being like uh bullied by the Council of Legendary Figures. Fuck that! He's not being bullied. He's being bullied. He just wants a holiday, and everyone's like, "Well, you're not a holiday. You're a." You're a season change. He's like, give me a holiday. And everyone's being a dick to him. Like, they're not respecting his, uh, his, uh, his autonomy, his, his space. He's fucking frost in Mexico in the middle of summer. Mm. Listen, listen, I didn't say he wasn't a bad boy. (laughs) He's got frosted tips. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, Jack Frost is doing all this bad stuff. It's attracting attention to the Council of Legendary Figures. They're like, you know what? You're stepping on everyone's holidays. Let's uh, kick you out. And then he gets one chance, and it's to basically apprentice under Santa Claus and be like, show me the ropes. Like, I I prove I can do my community service under you. Well, it's because Santa Claus is like... Because he's like, look, I'm already so stressed. I'm never going to make Christmas. I got this baby coming. She wants to meet her family. Like, I don't know if Christmas is going to happen. He never solved the issue from the previous movie, which is that he's stretched too thin, which I assume the previous Santa Claus, which we'll get to it. Uh, no one cares about the previous Santa Claus at all or for Santa Claus. So when he dies, no they get to the North Pole in the first movie. They get to the North Pole. Yeah. And no one recognizes that he's dead. Nobody even recognizes that Scott Calvin is like the replacement, except for like the new head elf, uh, David Crumholtz, who's like pissed off. He's great in the first movie. Yeah, uh, he's like, he correctly leaves by the third movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I have a theory on that, too. I think David Crumholtz was not in the third movie because his character was whacked for trying to turn state's attorney and tell everyone about where the North Pole was, maybe sell them. Oh, it's in New York. I'm David Crumholtz. <laughs> <laughs> I love David Crumholtz. I also the it's genius casting to cast someone who is famous for playing Jewish characters as a pissed off elf who's taller than all the other elves. Like it's great it's great casting. It's a very funny visual image. This this elf walking around in goofy clothing like just like stomping around like why aren't you fucking working? Yeah, he's good. It's too bad that the second movie puts him in all the worst scenes of the movie. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. not surprised either. Anyways, they show up at the North Pole in the first movie. Nobody recognizes that old Santa is dead. And then after a little bit, you know, new Scott Calvin's hanging out, sort of getting the the, the lay the land. Uh, what is it called? The lay of the land. The lay Hitting of the on land. Not a 300 year old elf, but still played by an eight year old. So it's super fucking weird. But also, she like says like, "Oh, I have a boyfriend." I think that scene implies that the previous uh, Santa Claus had an elf habit. I don't know. Like all of it is. Deeply uncomfortable, and I get they're trying to 
be like, well, no, these aren't children. These are elves. But the problem is they're, they're portrayed by children. They so fix that in the second com- movie to make them just children. Yeah, they're just children elves. With children habits and they're silly and they have fun. Like, they're not like angry old elves that are trapped in children's bodies like some curse has been yeah. put upon them. It's like fucking Interview with a Vampire where Kirsten <laughs> no, Dunst Yeah, is it's, like, it's, like, it's like fucking Kirsten Dunst from that movie. Yeah. Or uh, Homer from Near Dark. Who's yeah. like, do you know what it's like to have adult cravings in a child's body? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, and those movies are supposed to make you feel very uncomfortable with it. <laughs> this this is like a family movie where a uh, lot of flirting between Tim Allen and a nine-year-old. Yeah, Judy's like, sorry, uh, I'm banging someone in accounting. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's uh, very weird. And I don't also, like it. it does, I serious, it does imply that the previous Santa had an elf habit and everyone's like, you're not like that, right? Oh. Anyways. Well, uh, which makes sense because no one gives a shit that Santa is dead. Let's, that's the part you almost have to park on. Like, the fact that when Santa dies, which happens all the time, falls off a roof, gets lit on fire in a fireplace, all these terrible things, everyone's just like, all right, well, you're Santa now. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. <laughs> You're going to get all this stuff. Like, uh, what, what do you mean I'm saying? Just shut the fuck up. You're going to be gone in a year. Like, just just, just come on. Like, the fact that they just live with this, like, re- revolving door of Santa bodies up at the North Pole. And everyone's so fucking jaded. And it's only, like, at the end of the first movie and then the second movie where they're like, oh, the reason they care now is because, like, he's the first good Santa, which kind of makes sense, because if you get your Santas from people who find dead bodies and put on their clothes, I got to tell you, a lot of those people are going to be big old fucking creeps. (laughs) So, they probably, they probably got- we got another hobo Santa. (laughs) Yeah, they probably got to the North Pole and were like, oh, cool, my slave army that, uh, that I now command and probably treated them as such. So, hopefully we give you enough work that you don't beat all your slaves now. Uh, or, but like it is, no one gives a shit. That la- last year we had to work double time because the Santa just spent all day drinking hot cocoa. Yeah, yeah, and uh, cocoa gets you drunk in this universe. Yeah, uh, big time. It's uh, yeah, so it is weird. Yeah, it's very weird. It's also like Santa. The Santa Claus thing is clearly a curse that Scott Calvin grows more comfortable with as the movies go on. Yeah. So, like... But they keep introducing new curses. Yeah. Or also, get out of curses. And they just keep being like, well, now you gotta get a wife. And then, as the movies go on, like, just the basic asks of being Santa is so much that he can't perform those duties and also be a father and also be a friend or be a, a respectable member of society. He just has to spend... And I kind of like it, though, because it like do, it does kind of, like, ground the idea that Santa Claus is this this figure that if he spends all year working for this shit, like, yeah. that's, a, that's a grueling ask to make of someone. Here's the fucking problem with that. The whole first movie posits that Santa Claus is not important to anything but toy delivery at the end. It's because true. they just like go to your life, you know, a month before Christmas you're gonna get super fat, and then we'll talk then like show up Christmas Eve, deliver all the toys, go back to your life. Like so the the fact that this I get it, sure, the second movie he's like, Why am I still going to work? I'm Santa Claus. Like, that's yeah. cool. magic, fine. 
But the idea that, like, he is this critical part makes no fucking sense. Makes no fucking sense. Uh, also, no fucking sex. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, fuck, he makes a little fucking sex. Uh, yeah, we he know. makes a baby in the third movie, which I will talk about now. Yeah, this, um, yeah, P.S., this Santa fucks. <laughs> this Santa fucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we got to finish the third movie recap, but I think it's important to underline the way everyone views the life of a Santa Claus, because the third one's third act really sets up uh, the accidental death choice into a, a moral one that they keep repeating over and over. It, in uh, the first Santa Claus, second Santa Claus, third Santa Claus, no one has recognized the previous Santa Claus. He, he, he didn't get like a fucking Viking funeral. He didn't get... Any no. kind of funeral, he just faded into nothingness, it, it, it fodder for the Christmas engine to run on. And waving goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is so fucked up. It implies uh, actually that it's not, his death is not a, sad. it's not a sad thing. It's like it's a, a curse. It's a happy thing. Yes, it's a curse that has been put on what I believe everyone in the North Pole. And that's why there's so many pissed off David Krumholtz figures or Spencer Breslin takes off on the role. We got both Breslins in this. This is a double Breslin affair. Yeah, except one can act and one is literally the worst actor of all time. Yeah, Spencer Breslin is a good actor. garbage, yeah. We got, double, we got double Brez. Spencer Breslin is also pissed off that he's like, when he's the head elf, he's just constantly seems tired and annoyed. Yeah, no one likes it, but but I think that's what's so important for the curse part, because you realize, okay, so fine, Santa was happy that he died. Then you find out in the third one, as Jack Frost figures out, there's a whole room with globes. And all you have to do to stop being Santa is to hold the globe and say, I wish I'd never been Santa Claus. And you stop being Santa Claus, but then there's the catch-22. There's the moral dilemma. You don't just stop being Santa Claus. You reset the timeline of everyone in the universe's life to before you were Santa and waits for the other person to grab the coat. So in in theory, you actually like you have a cho- you have a moral choice. Do I want out of this job bad enough to destroy a certain amount of time for everyone? And when Scott Calvin sees his horrible it's a wonderful lifestyle future uh, where Pottersville is Jack Frost's version of North Pole where Yeah, so Jack Frost tricks Scott Calvin into doing this. Into doing the thing that you just you just suggested. Yeah. And he um, wakes up in his office like, "Where's my wife? Where's my kids? Why are we working on Christmas Eve?" Sir, you always work Christmas Eve. What? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's tur- it turns out he's heading up that toy business. He's an evil toy magnet. Uh, so Scott Calvin was apparently an asshole the whole time. This is really where the movie gets interesting, by the way. It, yeah, uh, it gets it gets insane because it posits so many things. One, like the the whole thing in the first movie is that Scott is really into Christmas. It's his wife that's not so much into Christmas. Yeah, his ex wife. So why by the third movie it's like you know you before you were Santa you didn't like Christmas and it was like no he did like Christmas. Yeah, that that was the whole point is that he was the believer, which is actually kind of a weird thing in the first movie is that like. He's not a Christmas cynic, and then when he becomes Santa Claus, he's, like, pissed off about it. Like, it'd be way funnier if he was a Christmas cynic, and then he had to work towards loving Christmas, 
because it would be like sort of like um like almost like in horror movies when they have like a ghost cynic and then by the end of the movie they're like ghosts are real and I know how to stop them you know it'd be that kind of thing like but I, I like it for Scott Calvin in the first movie because the whole point is he has all this hubris right and the idea that like being proven right is the worst thing that could happen to him for a little bit and then he's just so fucking annoyed that he was right about everything yes I agree. I agree. It's a it's a good arc, and he's right, but he's an asshole about it in the first one. He's like because yeah. he, he's rude to his ex wife in front of the kid. Yada yada. Anyways, so what does this new Jack Frost future look like? Jack Frost. He commercializes Christmas, <laughs> just like Uncle Billy fucking up with the money in It's a Wonderful Life. Spencer Breslin's head elf fucks up with the location of the uh, snow globe that'll that'll put the plot in place. Just like uncle billy and it's even more annoying in this and not because you care about the characters more but because it's just this contrived weird thing where hey it's jack the, frost has to the, be clever uh, enough to get this out of him and it's yeah. just they just force the issue well it's the uh yeah i know your secret why don't you tell me and then we'll both know and then that works yeah exactly it's like that's a that's a movie joke or that's a stupid character joke for a reason yeah so so there's this alternate North Pole. It's incredibly cynical and incre- incredibly consumerist. Let's well, hold on. I want to pause there because that's what I texted you when I was watching this, because this feels like a hilarious middle finger to conservative Christians. And I know it wasn't meant that way. But this idea that Jack Frost ruins uh, Christmas by commercializing it <laughs> is very funny to me because... Santa, to many people in this country especially, is the ultimate idea of commercializing a holy holiday. And the idea that Santa – this movie posits that Santa's representation of Christmas is the non-commercialized version and that someone – that Jack Frost, the villain, takes that away and commercializes it is fucking hilarious because, yeah, it's it's so – like, Santa is the commercialization of – Many people's holy day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Santa used to be this like this. Uh, even when I was growing up in school or in church, people being like, "Hey, remember, remember the true meaning." Santa's second fiddle to everything else that's happening, and like, even if you aren't a Christian, like you should. the The reason for the season is giving. Like, it's not in taking. Like, remember the true meaning of Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep the Christ in Christmas, all that stuff. And as we get older, and Amazon, and Apple, and all these companies, Facebook, start to share data and get better consumer reports on us and start to build these weird consumer profiles on us, uh, as we get older and that happens, and they start to come up with better and better presents for us, like, do you ever see something in your Amazon sidebar that's like, Hey, I actually really do want that. It's creepy more than exciting for me. <laughs> They're pretty bad at it for me because, no, I have a pretty good idea of what I wanted. It's all in my Amazon cart. There's like 500 things on there. So it's usually like, yeah, no, I've seen that 100 times, Amazon. I don't want it, but I am aware that that exists. Next yeah, or like you look up a joke thing on Amazon and then for a year they're like, you definitely want... 1,000 count dime bags for your weed, right? Like, no, no, no. The joke was that I looked at a kitchen scale and then I saw you wanted to also sell me a bunch of weed bags. Plus, Amazon thinks I'm a five-year-old. 
So, so the the commercialization of the holiday has only gotten creepier as we've gotten older, and it's got and as we get closer to a, a true Santa Claus, which is someone who like through our viewing habits throughout the year and through our, our buying habits throughout the year understands better what we want and offers it to us it gets creepier to me not more exciting well hold on but this movie universe posits santa claus knows what you want but rarely gives it to you so much so that his not giving it to you ruins your belief in santa (laughs) what was fuck with with the fucking weenie whistle in the first movie well but that's the thing is that this happens in the Christmas Chronicles, too, which does take a lot of its mythology from the Santa Claus, by the way, uh, which I think is hilarious, that there's all these situations where Santa can prove he's Santa by giving them the present that they wanted so bad as a child, um, but didn't get. And in real life, you see that and you go, well, of course they didn't get that present that they never told anyone about or was a secret. It's because there's no Santa Claus. But th- in these movies, it gets really weird because there is a Santa Claus, but these people still didn't get the presents. So, kind of posits a world where Santa knew that's exactly what you wanted, but for some reason didn't get it for you to be a dick. That implies one of the previous hobo Santas. That's true. Just, just got himself <laughs> hooch that year. It is true. This the second movie is literally filled with a scene of that of like thirty characters believing in Christmas again because they finally get the presents they didn't get as a kid. It's like, oh, was yeah, Santa was uh, under the bridge and tunnel crowd. Uh, that's that <laughs> look at Rudolph. Yeah, his nose lights up. He's like a strobe light for our homeless rave. <laughs> Oh, did you see those that video of the uh, Boston Dynamics uh, sled? No. And it was a Boston Dynamics robots. Do you know what these things are? They're terrifying. Those are like the little like uh, dog-like things that run through terrain, and there's a million fucking vines about them. Yeah, there's there's videos of people kicking them and them recovering really well because they like know how to take shock like. They're fucking terrifying, and they bring us closer and closer to that, like, Horizon Zero Dawn version of the future. Anyways, so uh, Boston Dynamics put out a video where a bunch of their robots were pulling a sled, and everyone reacted with terror instead of glee. Uh, I think they, at this point, like the terror. And my reaction is, like, are the fucking other reindeers out of work? What happened to Rudolph? Is Rudolph okay? Is Comet okay? (laughs) I hope Chet's not okay. No, I hope Chet... Fell it flew into the sun. I guess. <laughs> Do, da, da, da. Chet is the Jar Jar of the Santa Claus universe. He is the Jar Jar. Holy shit! That like, hey, if we're as obnoxious as possible, we can get there. One of the funniest tweets I saw this year about Christmas was something along the lines of, "Hey kid, you know what? Santa knows whether you've been naughty or nice, so he knew." That Rudolph was being picked on. He didn't do anything about it until someone could use him. <laughs> and, then, and Rudolph wasn't on the other side of the world. Rudolph was like no. 30 feet away. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. He was right yeah. there. He didn't give a shit. Uh, we have to finish the third movie. Yeah. So the third movie, uh, this is where the third movie gets crazy is that it's like an It's a Wonderful Life version of Pottersville where Jack Frost is selling all the shit. He does. Martin Short does a version of New York, New York, but with North Pole, North Pole. It's very fun for everyone except for Aaron, who's a it's bad all, person. It's all the worst inclinations of Martin Short. Thinks it's, it's very funny. fun. It's very fun. And uh, then uh, fucking Santa manages to trick Martin Short using a 
voice pen thing. That are very it's popular not, to sell at the North Pole. Don't worry about it. They've, it's not as contrived as the rest of the movie, weirdly enough. It's not foreshadowing if, it, if the thing gets introduced two minutes before your character's Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, my point that everyone should just watch the last half hour. Anyways, then what happens is we go back in time to the night in the first movie. Twice. Santa Claus fell off the roof. Yeah. Martin Short tries to get Santa's attention to get him to fall off the roof so he can grab his pants again. And Martin Short has his mouth covered by Scott Calvin as they both watch the previous Santa die so that <laughs> yeah. the, the Santa Claus 1 Scott Calvin can put those pants on, which in the first movie I think you could construe as an accident at yeah. best. Or manslaughter at worst. I mean, he just said, hey, wh-. I get it. Someone's on his roof. He said, hey, what's going on? He, the yeah. guy slips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From all of his hooch. Yeah, it's an accident, whatever. By the third movie, by this moment, Santa Claus literally going back in time to purposefully... Make sure that he dies. Make sure that old Santa dies commits an act of murder. This is an act of murder, knowing that someone's going yeah. to die unless you Shut act. up, don't save us. And then purposefully saying, no, I'm not doing anything so that that person dies is murder. It also tells you how much everyone didn't want to watch Santa Claus 3, including the people that made Santa Claus 3, because this movie's under 90 minutes and five minutes of that is just showing the entire first scene from, <laughs> from the Santa Claus, because they like... They can't leave until they make sure Scott Calvin puts on his coat. So there's a there's a long ways between Scott finding Santa Claus and then going up on the roof and putting on the coat. And they show all of it. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, tremendous. Yeah, let's just watch the first movie for a it's little tremendous. bit. It's tremendous. It makes you want to watch the first movie all yeah. over again. And, it, it, and so that's the first crazy thing is that the movie essentially has our hero, Santa Claus, who has become a purer and purer hero as the series has gone on. Like, honestly, that It's a Wonderful Life arc maybe lasts 15 to 20 minutes. It's very short. Then it gets by doing this time travel plot, this almost like back to the future primer style thing. Actually, Looper is probably the closer closest comparison. Um, he, he closes the loop um, to benefit himself, I guess. Then it makes a weird thing where the third movie creates an impulse in you or creates a sort of cyclical nature that makes you want to watch the first movie again, which is something I've never seen outside of sci-fi. I've only seen that in sci-fi where it's like you watch the third one and all of a sudden you're like, I got to go back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this makes sense for me to just continually watch one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That That's very weird and very interesting. And the movie, like I said, the movie only gets interesting in its final, honestly, 20 to 30 minutes in a 90 minute movie. So here's what's crazy about the third one, though. Was that 30 seconds of movie, by the way? Yeah, yep, exactly. We hit some points. The thing I really like about the third, that's it, it, kind of crazy to me, is they actually stumbled upon a good idea for the movie. Like the first one, he, you know, finds the code, he becomes a good father, blah, blah, blah. Second one is, okay, uh, it's a love story, right? They would have been much better if they would have just stuck to the love story, because that's the best part of that movie. It's interesting. Tim Tim Allen's good at that. Great. You're right. He keeps becoming a better and better person and a more well-rounded person. So the third one, it makes sense to be like, okay, hey, remember that person we saw in the first movie? Like, I think the It's a Wonderful Life idea or what does Scott Calvin look like if he hasn't been to a Santa Claus these last 12 years? But maybe instead of like in this 
the, the problem with this movie is that a it spans only 15 minutes there and so it doesn't give you enough time to soak into the world and so everything seems cheap and stupid but i think there is a good idea but instead of being tricked by jack frost what if he really is like about to have a kid feels overwhelmed and in a moment of weakness wishes that he wasn't santa claus again and then you spend an hour with him, like, not doing these cartoonishly over-the-top stuff, but, like, seeing what he would have been like if the last two movies hadn't happened. I think that's actually a pretty good fucking idea for the second sequel in a 14-year-old kid series about Santa Claus. It's just they didn't commit to it. Especially if he was handing off the baton in some way, if this was yeah. supposed to be old Santa. Or, yeah. you know, like... Santa a couple generations down or Santa at the tail end of his thing and Charlie's fully grown. Like, if yeah, maybe it just feels like he missed out on Charlie's life. Yes. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Like, there's actually something interesting there. They just didn't know what to do with it. And they did it as like a third act twist instead of like, that was the interesting stuff about the movie. You should have, well, A, written it better, but B, focused on it without this, you know, Jack Frost villain stuff like that but like let's talk about some things i really like about the series and why especially the first two movies i think are really actually amazingly good for what they are like i i know people don't like these movies or see them in that bucket of like christmas crap um but i really like them and there's there's a couple things that like especially the first movie hits that i really love one like it really is about scott calvin and his relationship with his kid and his relationship with his ex-wife and his wife's uh new boyfriend, maybe new husband, I forget in the first movie what they are, are all treated as real characters who have really gone through a change. In I love that. They're dynamic. I love it. And it's so well done. And they don't reset the relationship to just make uh, Neil mean to Scott at the beginning of the second one. Like, Neil is genuinely excited to be with Scott. And he's genuinely a good person and a good stepfather to he's trying Charlie. really hard he tries just in a so very hard. different way than scott it's great that they made him uh, a comic character that you can laugh at because neil kind of is the worst like he like i get he's a psychologist but like he's a psychologist who everything he says was as a psychologist like that is the worst. He's kind of an annoying guy. He wears Mind the stupid way, sweaters. By the way, I was raised by a psychologist who loved Christmas. She uh -huh. loved my mom loves Christmas. She loves like sentimentality and sweetness. Like don't she's not a strict believer that you're not allowed to have an internal fantasy life. Like all the she yeah. knows that all this stuff is is there it, it, weirdly enough these movies feel like they were written by divorced men the way some simpsons seasons could feel like they were written by divorced men where they were like yeah and then my wife said we got to go to couples counseling and i talked to this psychologist who told me i was an asshole can you believe that <laughs> and, and like I, that's why i think neil is such an asshole in the first movie and but see they, i don't think he is an asshole i just think that's neil he's a goober i think goober he's a goober one. yeah he is a goober and he is kind of like the worst in the same way Way you'd go like oh my god you're the worst but like he's not evil and he has good intentions he just is kind of a goober and he so he says a lot of dumb things and some stuff that is like and scott is like playfully mean to him he's not really mean to him and it's he's not he's mean to him because neil does a lot of things that are legitimately mockable for being a goober like there's not a there's not a meanness there uh there's not a like there's you're right they don't get back together 
Everyone and cares they, and about they never, Charlie. There's never even a hint at that, which I think is very kind to children of divorce. To yeah, this and Mrs. Doubtfire, which came out in the previous year, were like two movies that struck me as a kid where the parents don't get back together. It's also, you know, it's very clear why they divorce. Like the movie makes no bones about like this is Scott, this is uh, Linda, not right for each other. Scott is actually, even though he has these these larger than life duties. He's very much involved in the children's life, as is Neil. Yeah, I mean, but Laura is also not – even when she's, like, taking custody away from Scott, she is conflicted. She is legitimate. Like, she has a right to be concerned of what's going on. She's never painted as, like, an evil ex-wife who's just doing stuff to, like – which is, like, one of the problems with Mrs. Doubtfire is that sometimes, like, Sally, Sally Field, Fields gets the short shrift. She does. And this one corrects that, actually. Like, I don't think anyone gets the short shrift. It's just people don't have all the information. And they're basing it off, like, a history of behavior that, that a character is changing through. So, I love all of that. And it's it's so refreshing at a time when Neil could have been painted as the villain's stepdad. Who's like, Charlie, come here. Finally, my chance to take your kid away. But at the end of the day, he just wants his weenie whistle. And then, yeah, in the next movie, he loves being friends with Scott. He loves that they're a team. Like, he loves being – I love when he starts getting schemy. Uh, like, that's such a fun uh, – that's such a fun <laughs> switch for his character. But, like, I I just – I think that feels unique because it would have been easy to make someone a villain in the family. And they don't make any of them a villain. Neil and Scott get more and more of a trusting relationship, but they tease each other. I guess Neil doesn't tease him. It's just Neil says things that he thinks is right that kind of piss off Scott. But, like, they're not – it's not an antagonistic relationship. It's, like, it's two buddies that have differing ideas that have kind of reached a a accord for how they're going to uh, perform the difficult task of raising a child together. Yeah. The only thing that I think is like kind of condescending or divorce, uh, divorce kid fantasy that not, okay, it's fine. Your stepdad and your dad are buddies now and that means you get to see them together and they're not fighting like they are in the first movie, yada, yada. By the third movie, Neil and Laura run off to the North Pole to spend Christmas at the North Pole like like that. It's when Lucy, the daughter of Scott Callan's ex-wife and Neil, uh, Laura and Neil, starts calling Scott Uncle Scott, where I'm like, all right, we got to pump the brakes here. This has never happened, right? Like, unless you live in a no, village th- of 150 people. Like, I like the idea that you can divorce and have no harsh feelings. Like, ah, never, things didn't work out. But, like, Uncle Scott? Um, I mean, I, first of all, I'm pretty sure that has happened. I hope it's happened, but, like, is mankind good enough to deserve something like that? Like, <laughs> I'm sure there are divorced couples who get to the point where they're like, yeah. We never should have been married, but we're proud of our children. Like, I know there's a lot of bitter and shitty divorce couples, or uh, usually one of them uh, on one side, very specifically. But I don't know. I, I can see that happening. But either way, like, it's something it's something to aspire to. Yeah. There's a sweetness that I like, but it's something that I, I don't necessarily buy right away. That Charlie is doing just fine, because Charlie is now an... 18 to 22 year old kid yeah uh, there's a really great line in the third one just fucking lampshading of a character not being in the movie thanks for letting me go snowboard snowboarding with uh danielle and her parents for christmas 
That's Charlie being removed from the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still nice that he came back. I don't think he was doing anything else. But um, can you imagine me like, another Santa Claus movie. My career didn't take off like I hoped, but at least they're still making these. And like, yeah, come here. You got one line saying, and now I got to go return to my home planet of snowboarding. <laughs> That sort of sweetness and understanding of differences of opinion that actually grows stronger as the movies go on is one of the reasons why it feels like a trilogy, because the characters grow, their relationships deepen, and honestly, they're, they're all played by the same people, which I think is pretty impressive, too to get people on the hook for 14 years. Like, obviously, yeah. most of them were on the hook from two to three, which is a four year period. That's what I really like about the first movie. And there is a lot of good Christmas moments. And, you know, all those things breed about, like, the whole Santa transformation, the whole, like, all those scenes of him are very funny. And then they're sweet, too. Like, the kids going up to him, him, uh, you know, yelling at the kid the first year, which is a little weird that he's, like, yelling at this kid uh, who woke up while he's throwing presents around. But, like, that's funny. Like, the first one does have a lot of legitimately funny moments, like, when he starts just hurling presents at the tree because he just gets so frustrated. Like, there's a lot of good physical comedy. Tim Allen's good at playing put out. Like, it's good. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, And there's a lot of good warm moments around that. I'm sure we'll touch on a few more of those. The second one really – where it really hits its stride and why I do love it and it's actually a – it makes me cry way more than the first one. Huh. Um, Is – like the first one gets me a little bit at the end uh, when he's like giving the presents to everyone. But the second one I actually think has like – one of the most magical Christmas scenes of any movie. And it's enough to hang, I think, your hat on the entire movie, even though... Can I guess what it problems. is? I, it's going to be a e- very easy guess. Go ahead. Is it the scene where Carol and Scott are on their first date? It's going amazing. And then they decide to go to the teacher's uh, Christmas faculty party. party. Yeah. Yeah, that scene... Yeah, that faculty party is amazing. Uh, that party scene, yeah. I, 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 how did you react to it? Because I, I was very much... Like smiling and even giggling at parts to see all these like grown adults having an absolute blast in a way that like Christmas movies don't normally have. Normally the adults are kind of smiling and looking at children and like experiencing joy transitively. Like my children are happy or these children are happy, so I'm happy. And instead it's yeah. like grown adults becoming children, but without actually um, lowering their dignity or pretending to be kids or you know com- completely giving up who they are it's like just a it's just a fun sweet scene of people giving into that side of themselves without actually betraying who they are yeah and then that's followed by you know like elizabeth mitchell being like what is going on this is you know insane and you know scott calvin's whole speech about like you know what some things can just be magic like you don't need to have them explained to you um this is magic and this is like you know, blah, blah, blah. And there's that whole scene, too, like, from from the sleigh ride to just him bringing all these people joy, which we've talked about just last week. Like, people bringing people this immense joy is what gets me going from a cry perspective. Uh, yeah, so that all really gets me. And it is such a, like, epitome of the magic of Christmas in movies. And, again, like, totally uh, antithetical to everything I believe as a person. But... 
that's what Christmas movies can do if you are like, if that's something that interests you, if that's something you like. Like, this idea of like, yeah, all this magic happened. Just go with it. Just accept it. And that's like the season that I do that. And and especially as I get older, that idea of like still being that excited for a toy. And you know what? I also think it's fucking realistic because if someone – like, what's this toy to you, Peter? Because if I was at a Christmas party and someone said, hey, we have – a toy for you. We have a present for you from your secret Santa. And it was the fucking Dino Riders Tyrannosaurus Rex that was like crazy expensive when I was a kid and I was obsessed with Dino Riders. How could you not be? They're dinosaurs that um, have alien men with guns that they put on and they have wars with them. Like This is also weird. We need to we need to stop here. Dino Riders was not even really a show. It was like a one season thing, right? It, uh, it was like straight to video, essentially. Yeah, there's like 13 episodes. And it's weird that you and me both like obsessed over Dino Riders. Like that was the fucking peak of our childhood toy. Thing. I don't know how it wasn't the biggest thing of all time. It's it's everything. <laughs> That I liked. It was dinosaurs and guns with with <laughs> people when action figures with guns that would fight. Like that's the epitome. So like, if someone pulled that Tyrannosaurus Rex out, which I wanted more than anything in the world, they did it right now at my my office Christmas party. I would react like those people. Like, oh my I, god, I would, yeah. I would be like, oh my god, this is like, I would be so excited to open it. The fucking they're dinosaurs with armor plating and lasers yeah. on it. Like, yeah, because that's let how me they ride them. the armor pieces on. Like, I yeah. would. I would cry openly. The biggest one I ever got was the Triceratops, which was cool, but like, I had like a friend. So I had a friend when I was like four or five. His name was Zach. He he was he was the kid that my he was like the kid that my kid's probably going to be, <laughs> who like <laughs> he had like every toy that I ever wanted, and he was also like the first kid that had a Nintendo um, and everything like that. And because I'm really bad about like, oh yeah, no, you can have whatever you want. Go ahead. Yeah. I didn't get anything when I was a kid. You, Yeah, you want that? Let's get that. Um, and then, of course, I have all the video games and stuff like that. So, she will, by, by extension, have those things. Uh, but, like, to the point that I was – so, he had every Dino Rider. And I just would go over there. And I don't even know if I was friends with the kid at this point. You know, you're four or five. Just wanted to play with all those toys. And at one point, uh, my parents were like – all I would do was talk about Zach and his toys. And my parents were like – you know, if you like going on to Zach so so much, uh, you know, we can call his parents and you can move there. Expecting me to like, <laughs> to like recognize the like. Well, of course, though, I love my parents, and I they were not happy with my reaction because I was incredibly excited and asked if I could, and then was upset when they said that that wasn't a real thing. <laughs> so I was ready to leave my family, my brothers. To play with Dino Riders. Would, would you make your family disappear? Yeah. Uh, for Dino Riders? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, the toys, right? Yeah. Or the real thing? Uh, both. Okay, because I would totally leave my family for the real thing, but I would never leave my family for the toys. Oh, but you'd leave if there were a dinosaur pulled up with laser cannons and said, mount up. <laughs> yeah you're like obviously. i gotta go fight the rulons <laughs> obviously yeah are rulons the enemies in that oh they're the bad guys yep it's the oh. uh let's see the main guy was quest it both sounded right and like something you made up so no it's, it's definitely in- the rulons because they 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 tried to rule them they tried to rule on baby yeah um what, what was the name of the what was the name of the good guys do you remember uh dino riders i believe well that's what they say at the end they're like uh dinatarians no they say we're not 
Andorians anymore. We're dino. That was like the end of the first video that like you could buy. Oh, yeah. The Valorians. Yeah. Yeah. Like they really into Valor jumpsuits, right? Yep. The Valorians and Rulons. But that's, I think we're doing what we're talking about right now. Like, Revelator. Yeah, now we're getting into the toy that we, we loved as a kid. The, the specific triggers of your own nostalgia have power over you because you haven't had time. And especially, I think right now, like, we're in the age where our nostalgia has been mined for five, maybe even 10 years on some things. That yeah, no one's gotten to Dino Riders yet. No one's gotten to Dino Riders yet. Our nostalgia has been mined so thoroughly that, like, we're used to having that nostalgia just lose all meaning. But, like, that scene is so wonderful because it's people getting blindsided by their own nostalgia and getting to share that with people. And it's it's a beautiful scene. It also has Tim Allen doing a very good Tim Allen thing where he when he's on stage, he's like, he's doing some bad dad jokes. Yeah. And they're kind of flubbing. But you also see Carol like kind of be charmed by him just trying. Yeah. That, you know, like even if he didn't have all the presents, like if he had just gone on stage and done something to make everyone happy, like she would have still loved him. She didn't need that miracle, but that miracle solidified her love for him very fast. And, and that, well, and, which it needed to because of the Mrs. Claus. And I love how both in this movie and in the third one, they lampshade the weirdest aspects. In this movie, in the second movie, when Scott Calvin proposes to Carol, it's full of just like, awkward patching together of the proposal and people surrounding them and how overwhelmed she just me she must be and the fact that like throwing all this shit on her and saying essentially like if you don't marry me you're ruining christmas Christmas." like and and the, the fact that the movie is willing to recognize how borderline abusive that is is wonderful because he's just like yeah but you don't have to marry me like don't worry about any of that stuff like just worry about like whether or not you think that this would be a thing yeah and like do you want to try and like her reaction where she's like she's not just like rapturously falling into his arms she's just sort of like in love with him and feeling the moment and kind of going from moment to moment and enjoying this proposal in this magical kingdom is what i think makes the second movie work because it yeah. does work as a romance movie. It does. And it they really would have been better served if it would have stayed there. Because all of that stuff is good. Him trying to, like, be a father again to Charlie, who's having these discipline issues. And then um, and then his relationship with, uh, with Carol. Or him trying to date. Like, the Molly Shannon scene is pretty funny. The Molly Shannon scene is a highlight in the second movie. Uh, the fact that she he actually, on his first blind date, meets uh, Molly Shannon. Because that's, that's what she that's what uh, Laura says. She's like, actually, I know this person who's like really into Santa, so you might like her. And, and she, she's a she shows up. She's a weird, like she's into Santa. But she shows up, my favorite gag is that she shows up wearing a Santa sweatshirt. But the person on the sweatshirt is is Tim Allen in his <laughs> Santa thing, which is so great because, like, yeah, he is Santa. So apparently, in this universe, they make Santa shirts with like they they got it pretty right, um, so that it looks it is just Tim Allen. And because he's desant, he, the desantification process has begun. He she doesn't recognize him, but uh, it took me a couple times to get that she is literally walking around with a with a 
with a sweatshirt with Tim Allen's face on it. Uh, Tim Allen actually gives a like nervous little look to the shirt. Like, yeah, yeah, you got that. And I can't tell if it's just because like of her obsession or because he's like, is she going to realize that I'm Santa Claus and ruin my life? Yeah. It's legitimately a wonderful comedy scene. And it's the it sort is. of thing that like I... I'd be fine if there were five Santa Claus movies if it was just like Tim Allen engaging with weird, weird magical situations and Tim Allen being a magic person in real life. Like, I would love that stuff. They they should have stuck to that stuff. Like, they should have had more dating scenes. They should have given more time for the relationship to develop. They get rid of all the North Pole stuff. And I think you have, like, a movie that's as good as the first one. If not, maybe even a little better because – I think the stuff that works in the second one works even harder than it, the first one. It's just the the fact that even after that magical scene I just talked about, then basically that plot's resolved. He has the relationship with Carol and she can be the Mrs. Claus. And now we have a half hour left to deal with Mussolini over at the North Pole <laughs> and like a bunch of weird battle scenes that no one cares about. Like that's – like I said, Santa Claus 2 is so good at what it does that the 45 minutes that work make up for the other 45 minutes that absolutely do not work. Yeah. Enough that I can say it's a movie that I enjoy and I like. Uh, but, I I mean, if they would have stuck to to that, I think they would have essentially had a perfect sequel. Like, show more dates. Yeah. Let the relationship develop. I love the date thing because – Molly Shannon is a gifted improv performer. That's where SNL's best seasons are all mining from improv scenes. Second City, UCB, SCTV, like the SCTV Canadian scenes. Yeah. Like it's uh, when they mine from those people, magic happens. And getting to see Tim Allen, who is a gifted comic performer, he has really good timing. He's actually, that's part of the reason why Very natural. I'm fine with Last Man Standing being on TV, even though it's like, pap and i have no interest in it is that he's just really good in the room he has really great chem comic chemistry with people yep. he's really good at that like in the moment just like coming up with something funny to say kind of kind of work even if it's something you know that's basically derivative of a million jokes he's had like he can come up with something funny to say and the way he plays off of molly shannon when she sings him that weird shania twain song yeah Man, I feel like some Christmas. Yeah. And I feel like some Christmas. And she's singing in this this fancy restaurant, making him super uncomfortable. And there's a great joke before on the way to the date where he says, like, yeah, I'll uh, have a great date. I'm wearing a needlepoint sweater and I'm driving a minivan. <laughs> and uh, so he, he goes he goes in whenever she sings this song and then she sits down. And he's like not reacting enough. And, and she goes, you hated it. And he goes, it kind of scared me. And she yeah. goes, I put myself out there, Scott, and you reacted like this. Like it, it's, it's a great, uncomfortable comic scene in the middle of this movie. And I would have loved if the sequel had done more of that Martin Short sort of like moments together that just like see what arises between these two weirdo characters coming at each other. But Scott Calvin never gets to be Scott Calvin in the third movie, really. No. And then... Martin Short never gets to be a normal, relatable character because the Council of Legendary Characters are all these kind of over-designed, big character costume things. And what you say is totally true. I would love to have more small moments where they get to bounce off each other. And that's why I told you to watch the bloopers in the third movie. Because I love the scenes where him and Tim Allen are just, like, goofing around on set. 
I think they're both charming, fun people. They both are gifted gifted at feeling the room for improv. If they had more scenes like this Molly Shannon scene in the series, like I, it'd be it'd be great. Like I said, like I'd be fine. I'd be fine if they made one of these movies every like two or three years, where Santa's getting older, but for one sixth of the budget each time. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, Santa's just sitting like in a cabin and Kristen, and Kristen Wiig walks in and says three lines and then leaves. Yeah. And also, I think that scene is indicative of the series as a whole is why I like it. Like, they're never mean to any characters. It's what I talked about in the first movie. Like, like Molly Shannon is a weirdo, right? And she does something that is uncomfortable for people. <laughs> yeah. Tim Allen does not is not a dick to her he reacts as pleasantly as he can being in a very uncomfortable situation that she put him through she didn't put him through because she was mean she just you know she she thought she was putting herself out there and then the movie lets her save face by being like you know what if you don't love me at my singing shania twain in this restaurant uh then we're just not gonna work out so i'm gonna leave now like it it's not cruel and i think that that's very important um because i'm just i'm not i'm not and those are such those are the easier jokes to make it's easier for these movies especially like kids movies or christmas movies to like be cruel it's kind of surprising how much that is a part of children's entertainment and these never really do that even jack frost like they're they they're not a dick to him at the end like they give him another chance. He like he gets warmed by a hug. Like, <laughs> like yeah, that's fucking super lame and it's bad. But they you know, they just recognize that he is his heart is frozen and that's why he's kind of an asshole and uh the the love of someone can unfreeze it and like you know what? That's better than the alternative. <laughs> That that movie could have offered. That scene is also really nice because, weirdly enough, Jack Frost took a role in making keeping Scott Calvin on track. Like, Christmas would have been ruined if Scott Calvin hadn't had this conflict where he grew to appreciate his, his uh, mother and father-in-law. Like, Scott Calvin freaked out before Jack Frost even had the, the you know... Before Jack Frost even had the ability to really fuck with his life, Scott Calvin already was, like, at ends with his mother and father-in-law, and they were threatening to take his his wife away from him for the holidays because he was too focused on work up in Canada. Um, really, uh, real quick, funny joke in that part is when uh, they're making the North Pole look like Canada. Yeah. And they're going through a, tr- a Christmas tree lot. <laughs> and it's and it says a Christmas tree lot in the North Pole. So there's three signs and it sort of passes by one and it says like these are Canadian Christmas trees. And then the next sign is like, which is where we are right now. And then the next sign is like, we're in Canada right now. Like it's a, it's a good like Simpsons-esque joke yeah. in the middle of a, of a dirge of unfunniness. And yeah, the funniest make, part of the movie is Alan Arkin. Making... Ooh. Who's totally Alan Arkin uh, is, is so seems so confused by everything around him. This might be the first time Alan Arkin has ever performed near green screens. Well, and also, yeah, he really is just sometimes just standing still, not even trying to react to what's going on and saying lines. But Alan Arkin, I think, figured out that this is a bad movie he's in. And there's nothing better than when Alan Arkin doesn't care. 
or seems like it, which is kind of his shtick to begin with. But just to kind of be like, oh, Scott, you're Santa Claus. Of course. Oh, like it, it, his total disdain for everything he's saying makes it really funny. Oh, yeah. And then even when he has to do that final reveal at the end where he's like, he's like, oh, you know, I guess I guess that's fine. Like, oh, this makes saying, so much sense now. This all checks out. Now I know why you were being an asshole. You had this much pressure on you. Wow. I'm the I'm what is what does he say like oh I'm the I'm the father-in-law to Santa I'm father-in-law Christmas wow <laughs> like like he's he's sarcastic even like everything he says is not uh not committing to it's it sort of like Elliot Gould when he gives 20% sometimes it's funnier than when he gives 100%. Yeah, Alan Arkin giving 5%, which he does in this movie is amazing. Yeah, which I think only works on a certain class of older actor, and Alan Arkin's one of them. Here's a question I have, Peter. Uh this only is in the first two movies, which makes it even weirder because it f- feels like something inexplicable and bizarre should be in the third one. Uh why are they so into Punch and Judy on the North Pole? I don't know. Punch and Judy is like the honeymooners kind of thing, except for the honeymooners don't actually hit each other, right? Like, it's. Yeah, but it's like more like 1920s. It's just like these two buppets that beat the shit out of each other, and they are like heavily featured as being everywhere in the North Pole. But like, you figure in the first movie, it was just like filler content, like, hey, we need another toy, and then they would throw in Punch and Judy, like, eh, the old folks will recognize what this is. And then as the movies go on, you're like, no, I guess Punch and Judy are like the comptroller and treasurer of the North Pole. Why are they so prominent? Uh, It's bizarre. I also like that the idea that the premise for the second movie was someone going, okay, 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 okay. Sequel to Santa Claus. Number one, priority. How do we make Tim Allen fuckable again? Let's work backwards from there. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of borderline sad how they are like, let's make Santa Claus into this cartoonish, fat suit, rosy cheeked thing. And then all of a sudden they're like, we need someone who's plausibly fuckable. Carol is great in these movies um sorry yeah she's great in two she's given nothing to work with in three and so she mostly just smiles and she's great at smiling yeah she that's how it is in like there's that stretch in two two where she's just like great we're in love and like before the when she's not given a character she sucks but elizabeth mitchell's good like i liked her in lost do you like her in uh purge election year as yeah, the she's great in stand-in. Yeah, she's great. It's a very, it's a very good movie, and she's very good at like a diversity of roles. Like she can play a badass, and she can also like play... the person who ends the purge. Yeah, the person who ends the purge. Uh, she can also be like a soft, like sweet person who like gets her heart melted by a simple act of innocent joy. Yeah, like, she's that's she's in number two. Like she starts out as like the principal who thinks Tim Allen is like a shitty dad who's not around. What's that? What's that? That sick burn she gives to Tim Allen early on. It's like very funny. And while the, the it's something like uh, ah, try to engage me in a battle of wits. Too bad you came unarmed or some shit like that. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's good. Very, it's very like uh, Winston Churchill at a cocktail party kind of thing because she is yeah. a stone cold killer. Yeah, but like she still doesn't seem mean because she's like talks to that kid. But it's like, hey, I just don't have time for parents that show up occasionally to take an interest in your children when, like, we have to deal with them every day, which I feel is 
appropriate. That's an appropriate thing to think as a as an educator. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we're not babysitters. We're trying to teach your kids. I do like that she's the conflict is essentially I'm a very good principal. Your kid sucks. And your kid is <laughs> shitty. Yeah. But I'm gonna work really hard to figure out the way to to break through to your kid. And I like that they do a slow burn. I, I actually this is something I really like uh, about these kind of movies because it feels old school. Where in old school comedies, they would have two characters that fucking hate each other. And then 20 minutes in, 30 minutes in, you're like, oh shit, this is a romantic movie. I forgot about that. Because they start clicking in weird places. Too it bad we're not going to talk any movies like that in the near future. No wink, 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 wink. wink. I, I like that. Kind, it feels very classic to me. The idea of like two characters like shitting on each other and then they kind of figure out each other's boundaries. But like that shitting on each other is is sort of a flirting thing. Yeah. But they I don't mean, realize you're just that. describing Sam and Diane relationships. Yeah. 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 Um, it's it, <laughs> what there should be a name for it. There should be a name for it. Let's call it a Santa and Carol. <laughs> But I like that. I like that dynamic a lot. I do. It's a lot more interesting for the character growth because like you do and it does require a bit of working backwards where like you have to decide what those two characters are and then how do they reach some sort of compromise or path forward at least. And that's I mean, that's like good comedy drama fodder. Yeah. And I feel like it's this is one of the rare ones to where. It's kind of okay that Tim Allen's not up front with her, because A, he's up front with her pretty quickly once he gets serious, and two, being Santa Claus seems like one of those secrets that it's okay to hide. Yeah, I agree. And they, they try really hard to make the marriage n- not seem coerced, because obviously, like, look at the alternatives. Like, there is no Christmas, and and he if he didn't tell her, but here's the alternative, if he didn't tell her the cost... It would be a massive lie. Once they kind of get entangled in the situation, which is accidental, Santa does not pursue this woman. He just accidentally ends up in love with her, which makes the whole thing sweeter. Him having that conversation in front of all the elves to say like, so I want to marry you. You will have to be Mrs. Claus because of magic. You will have to take on this curse. If you don't marry me, they all lose their jobs, basically. Well, he just has to go kill himself and then there'll be a new Santa, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That works. Someone put on my coat. And it's in a weird way, it's almost like a political marriage, like from the old days. Like, hey, she gets eternal life and to let herself go a little. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And he gets to let himself go a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I just like it because I'm not even saying that to be mean. Like, the ending scene is Elizabeth Mitchell, like kind of in a fat suit dancing very yeah. happily so she's like great yeah this, this is awesome. what we're doing i can eat like shit and not and be his eternal life yeah i'm in the weirdly the only thing about that whole thing i look makes- in the mirror a lot of times and wonder if i'm turning into santa claus later i'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you peter <laughs> hey, wait, do you have grays in your beard i have some in my temple now oh so wow it's, yeah. it, it works outward. It does, yeah. I also have a fear that I have a weird-shaped head, but that's a whole different issue. That oh, I definitely have about. a huge head. Well, I have, like, a, I have a massive head. I have a melon. That's another thing that you and I have in common. Yeah, if I, I mean, Like, here's do the you thing. ever walk around and just lose balance just because that, that old melon's just throwing your weight off? Uh, the ending of, the only thing I hold against the ending of the second one, where Mrs. Claus has to accept uh, Scott Calvin's uh, proposal... 
is, it, they do a lot of back and forth where like people try and help them understand the situation, but like also they're trying to not pressure her into taking it. And they're like, there's really no good path forward. I'm sorry. Like, okay, I get why Scott Calvin elects to be at the North Pole for two and three because. A, it fucking rules. B, it puts his skills to work because he likes being a toy maker. C, he likes he's a businessman. So he's an innovator and he likes process improvement, operations improvement. Like that all checks out. Why does Mrs. Claus, who appears to take no role in the production until like kind of weird patches in the third movie, why why does she need to be there and not just have like a normal job and then she takes her month vacation like every other middle school teacher Maybe she does. does. Maybe she's teaching the elves because she likes the idea of teaching elves, Peter. She doesn't ever seem unhappy or coerced at any point. Okay. I just want to make sure that she didn't give up all her dreams. Okay, that's fine. Uh, actually, my biggest problem with the second movie is that, like, we, we talked about this in the Home Alone episode, that, like, one of the reasons people dislike Christmas movies is because they don't like Christmas. And some people have some very good reasons to not like Christmas. And Christmas movies and the Christmas season as a whole oh, yeah. is kind of predicated on, like, if you don't like this... You're weird. You, you suck. Like, just You're accept You're a Scrooge. It. You're not, not true. Uh, true at all. Some people just didn't grow up with this weird set of traditions that are completely arbitrary. And it sucks how much they have to be, you can't leave the house in December without it being rubbed in your face. And that sucks. Uh, especially if you have traumatic memories associated with it or you feel the pressure of the holiday as a whole and stuff like that. And that sucks. Santa Claus 2 is the worst offender of any movie I've ever seen of, like, literalizing the hey if you don't like christmas time maybe shut the fuck up and just accept it like i I question you as a person like there is a speech that scott calvin gives that really is like uh hey what is your problem and that sucks yeah and i think one thing that really grounds the series is you being willing to have an internal fantasy life you being willing to embrace the sweet innocence of the season or the uh the charitable half of the season which is way more important that like get into it give some money like if you can afford it put some money aside for some people don't give it to the salvation army and if you can't give money aside yeah don't give it to salvation army make sure you're looking up which organization you're giving money to just because they're out there with bells guys yeah literally giving money to uh persecute gay people (laughs) yeah don't 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 fucking do do it Also, don't yell at the people that are ringing the bell because they're probably just nice people they don't know. that are just like, yeah, we're helping think the they're homeless. Volunteering. And yeah. don't don't yell at them. That might be the one thing that helps them through the holiday season. Like, I didn't know. I was like, good, I'm ringing the bell in cold. This is something I don't enjoy, but it's for a good cause. It's and like yelling at a fucking McDonald's fry cook because you don't like the antibiotics and McDonald's beef. Like, Sorry, the, the people at the Genius Bar don't choose where your iphones are made yeah uh yeah the thing the reason why it kind of is okay in santa claus 2 though is that like it is positing a world where a magic santa claus man does exist so the idea of the magic of the season can be a little literalized like they're like these people literally were getting gifts from santa right yeah Oh, it's yeah, that's, like, that's the biggest gap in all these Santa movies is, like, the adults don't believe in it, but every adult somehow has random gifts show up in their house, and they're like, Honey, you get this? Whatever, we bought so much shit. 
<laughs> That'd be funny if that like America is such a capitalist country that they're the only country that doesn't know that Santa Claus exists because they're just like, I don't know, it just blended in with the other shit. That's always the problem literalizing a Santa. But again, that's why the like the chastising doesn't bother me that much. However, if you don't like Christmas, I mean, if you don't like Christmas, don't watch the Santa Claus 2. That's what I'm saying. But watch, definitely watch Santa Claus 3 if you don't like Christmas, because I think that will only uh, make you feel very proven right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to park real quick on something that I hate about these movies. Yeah. The one thing I don't like about, the one set of jokes I don't like in this movie are the hyper punny bullshit. So, like the titles? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. Titles of the like the titles okay. in the movie imply a lot of puns, and you're going to get them. And in, like, the third movie, instead of Red Bull, it's, like, Red Deer and one of the machines that plays a crucial role in the plot. It's just, like, there's a lot of pointless, punny bullshit going on here. Where do you think Batman got the idea? (laughs) Yeah, it is similar to the Batman thing where it's just, like, an insane person lives a fantasy life in an insane realm where they get to dress up, go out and enact their will on a populace... Yeah. And you're going to take these presents. I'm Jewish. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) And it is like kind of in keeping with like the Tim Allen thing, like this sort of like hokey dad joke thing. But it genuinely makes me uncomfortable how many how militarized the North Pole is in these movies. Like in the first movie, there's an ELFS squad and it stands for something. I don't know. It's uh, fuck. What is it? The, the yeah what does it fucking stand for here we go oh my god effective li- liberating fight squad yeah <laughs> the, the military with the cambodian rebels <laughs> well the khmer rouge came in but yeah. they were uh swiftly pushed back by the yellow we're like a liberation squad you heard of uh apartheid like oh no <laughs> no no the santa claus don't do this <laughs> Uh, the Boko Haram were pushed back by UN forces today, but uh, were overswept by the ELFS. Yeah. Uh, the, the militarization of the elves is... Uh, but it's funny they have a whole squad, though, which does posit a lot of these fucking drunk-ass Santa Claus landed this yeah. summer. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, whole, the whole thing is very uncomfortable for me, not just because, like, elves are militarized, but it also posits that, like, these are a... This is a fucking sovereign nation in the north pole <laughs> and that they're hiding under plain sight very similar to the african nation in uh black panther yeah they're, they're basically called? the same movies basically the same movies well yeah that's true they have secret technology uh-huh. uh 2% of the elf population is black so that's like one key difference but they have secret technology kept at a safe distance from the rest of the human population. They're magical in a lot of ways, yada yada. Wakanda is way cooler, I think, than the North Pole. But anyways. Of course Wakanda's cooler. Kendrick Lamar scores their national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> the North Pole reflects that... Oh, it uh, reflects, baby. That's what the North Pole's best at. <laughs> the North Pole reflects... How's that for a pun? <laughs> it's great. It's great. It reflects that where they have an internal military force that is only designed in case of uh, their sovereignty being challenged. 
Well, they have a whole procedure when a fucking plane passes over. They go to submarine mode on yes, an entire city. The militarization, militarization of the elves is totally something that Tim Allen brought in and having tools and gear and gadget made things cooler. So in the first movie, there's this fucking ELFS squad and it makes me so uncomfortable. They're going to save Santa from jail and they're like, we're elves with attitude and that Bart Simpson bullshit that you were talking about earlier just punches you right in the face until it breaks your nose. It's the only part of the first movie that I genuinely hate. Yeah, it's uh, whatever song they play there, too, is really bad, too. Is it ZZ Top? Santa? No, they do play ZZ Top. That's fine. Uh, In England, do you think they call it ZZ Top? Yep. I think they definitely call it ZZ Top. Keep moving? Yep, keep moving. (laughs) Um... (laughs) This is why you should text me jokes beforehand. It's fun when I'm going to edit out the part where you said text me jokes beforehand. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, there there is one of these has like a punk Santa song. It's not good. I thought it was the first one. Oh, Santa as a ninja. Yeah, that's in the second one. It's very bad. All the music in the second one is bad. All the music in these movies are bad, except for ZZ Top. <laughs> so we didn't get into something really key here. Uh, okay, do, do the do, key. Do you think that... The Santa Claus contract is legally binding. Well, we already know they have a court system run by uh, Aisha Tyler. So, I think there, yeah, if it's covered by the Constitution, I can't answer that. We should have had Casey from last week. And we can assume we should have Casey from last week on here. We really goofed it. We should have made, he said, like, I'll do It's a Wonderful Life. And be like, guess what? You're watching three Santa Claus movies. And as someone who just edited It's a Wonderful Life, when we said we were doing this, he said, oh, God. So, I think that would have meant he was in because people love God. So you make a good point. Aisha Tyler, the the legend, the council, the legendary council, apparently apparently acts as some sort of high court, an oligarch. What a maybe bullshit a rabbit court. hole they really tripled down for that third movie. Like that is the worst part. It doesn't help because it, it's all the the most dated shit. Is like the tooth fairy being like, I don't want to be called a fairy. I'm the Molinator, my little girly wings. It's like Jesus Christ. It's not good. And then they're like, for the third one, they're like more. Molinator. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it is kind of clever, though, that like they use that whole thing where like if you yank out your tooth, you can get. Yeah, but then they do it twice in a row. Yeah. It's not, again, it's not foreshadowing if you just did it. Like they, they're like, how did you get here, too? Oh, the same way that those other people got here two minutes ago. No. That's not how these things, that's not how set up and payoff work. Set up and payoff means you just do the same thing five times in a movie. That's just how it works. To understand it, it really is a scene where Scott Calvin gets there by having a tooth yanked. And then two minutes later, Charlie and Carol arrive. He's like, how did you guys get here? And they're like, oh, yeah, we all, we just pulled a tooth. Remember we were there with you? We did the same thing. We're like, oh, yeah, we're also going to go. It's like, great. Like, oh, my God. What fucking. <laughs> The director of this, the director of those movies, did find the calling in Hallmark movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I think that two would be a much better movie if it was directed by someone who wasn't interested in purely schmaltz. And I like two, but like two would be a lot stronger of a film if it was directed by somebody from the comedy world who was like, "Let's get more weird comedic scenes in here." Like it's an hour and forty-five minutes. Like there's so much room for wiggle. Yeah, and like the director of the first one who really latched his star to Tim Allen. But, like, 
he because the only movies he directed were the Santa Claus Jungle to Jungle and Joe Somebody, and I guess oh, and Miss Congeniality too, Armed and Fabulous. But like, <laughs> thank you. He he directed gro- episodes of Growing Pains, New Heart, Family Ties, Roseanne, Home Improvement. Like he understood like how to make something fun. He understood the meat factory approach, the slaughterhouse approach to getting movies done. That's why it's so impressive that two is, has scenes that have room to breathe. And, and uh, the guy there, Michael Lemmick, the bloopers imply that there was more fun being had on set than sometimes in the scenes. Oh, the guy that did these did that tooth fairy movie with the rock. Oh God. He loves it. He has a, <laughs> Fetish for the Tooth Fairy, apparently. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He really was like, let's only do Tooth Fairy months. <laughs> he just how much? How much would I bet there's a scene in The Rock's Tooth Fairy where he complains he's too girly? <laughs> <laughs> like that's this guy's hundred percent. Like, oh, I love the Tooth Fairy. I wish it wasn't so fucking girly. Make a man. <laughs> the cover is literally The Rock standing in a tutu. So I'm pretty sure that that's the whole movie. What a weird well to latch your entire career to. Love that Tooth Fairy. I wish he had a dick. <laughs> I want the tooth fairy, but I want him to have a big hog and big muscles. Yeah, I want I want him to uh, have a dick and like be proud of his dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um but the I think that there is no body on earth that would bound Scott Calvin to the legality of the Santa Claus thing. Because one I don't think any human being would make the argument that it is an expected part of putting on a jacket that you need to agree to a contract sewn within the contents of that jacket. Look, most of my legal contracts, I'll just say as someone who writes and executes many legal documents in my everyday goings about, uh, I make the font progressively smaller as the contract goes along. And so far, I've never been taken up in court, never had any issues getting notarized. Uh, I think it's pretty standard just to make <laughs> make the font go so small that you need eight stages of a electronic microscope to view it. I think it's just part of the law. And no one reviews the contract for an entire year before they read the entire Correct. card. Yeah, you gotta keep buying bigger microscopes. Yeah, well, you, you gotta keep buying bigger microscopes. And, and then macroscopes? Yeah, they're at the... the uh, and then Hubble The atomic level. I wrote this in, a, in fucking quarks. <laughs> Tachyons. Here's the thing, though. Hand a contract to somebody who is impatient or stressed out and just keep all the text at the same size? It's because the chief elf is the in Brooklyn. He's they're gonna Brooklyn. sign that shit immediately. Doesn't have time to read whole contracts. He's walking here. He's walking here. All right. Uh, yeah. I think that the contract is not legally binding in any way. It didn't even happen on North Pole territory. If there is an enforcing body, I'd like to see them go up against the U.S. Supreme Court on that. Like, come on. But what are you talking about enforceable? They make it very clear he doesn't have to do Christmas if he doesn't want to. He's just going to be fat for a month. <laughs> <laughs> the question is who's he gonna sue to not be fat for december no one it, it feels like a cult though because he's not paid for his service he's offered room and board cocoa and the culture <laughs> yeah he gets cocoa yeah he he's gets... a google intern essentially no one gets presents for him that's what's <laughs> the saddest part about being santa claus that you think you're inheriting all the presents of the world but you you don't get any 
Mm. As soon as you touch a present, it turns to coal. Yep. If you touch it too much, you go blind. (laughs) Your palms get hairy. It goes right (laughs) through your gloves. Final thoughts on the Santa Claus trilogy. Go. The final thoughts on the Santa Claus trilogy. Um, That's like you're like trying to like stall for like a test. Like (laughs) where you repeat the question. (laughs) (laughs) So how would I describe America's system of government? (laughs) Hmm. Well, well, America's system of government is based on the Santa Claus trilogy uh, reflects how a lot of series goes on. There's a diminishing set of returns, but there's something compelling that makes you want to continue to visit this world. There's something stimulating about it, the weird vision of the North Pole. There's something stimulating about the fact that Scott Calvin continues his journey of self-discovery, which is a weird fucking thing to say about a series that's like Tim Allen, who I don't think has done any personal growth since like 1999. But the the series creates this thing where like you're actually invested in Santa as a person and his his day-to-day trials and tribulations and the fact that it's like very hard to serve this ultimate ultimate charitable role for all of of humankind's children. The comedic approach to everything kind of pushes away some of the schmaltz pain that comes in because they're willing to make fun of themselves. Like, there's even a moment late in the third one when the movie has completely gone into cynical territory where Alan Arkin and Anne Margaret are like, so he's he's friends with his ex-wife and his ex-wife's husband and their child and they're coming to the to to christmas with us okay that's yeah that's normal like there's even moments in the movie where it's making fun of itself and being self-deprecating and like because of that i think it helps push off some of that that schmaltz creep i like to watch the first movie every year i i I would not like to watch uh all of them every year but i like to watch the first movie and sometimes the second movie every year because they're they have a sweetness that doesn't feel cynical to me it feels very genuine and it taps into what I love about Christmas, which is the idea that like you can be embarrassing and you can be completely uncynical and idealistic. You can let all of your crazy bullshit subside for a little bit and just focus on what matters, which is like being the best person that you can possibly be. And like that's why I like these movies is because like it's, it's fucking weirdly enough by the end of the third movie, like. Tim Allen is a better version of Tim Allen than Tim Allen will ever be. I, I, I love that. I love that. It's, it's, incredibly, it's incredibly sweet, overly sentimental. There are times in the year when you need to allow that into your life, I think, to balance you out. I think that that sort of 90s cool, overly cynical bullshit is uh, tiring. It's nice to have a space in your life for something like this. It doesn't have to be the Santa Claus first two movies, but like something like this is, is it's, it's comforting. To have something that's that's so unjaded, so fresh, so innocent. So here's what's funny about the Santa Claus movies. There is not a better movie about Santa Claus. <laughs> like, for as many Christmas movies as there are, and there are a lot, although not as many as I think people think, especially watchable ones. Like, there, there's just not that many that actually are about Santa Claus for obvious reasons. Santa Claus is this eternal character that's hard to depict 
hard to make the main character unless he's going through some sort of trial. What kind of trial would Santa Claus go through? I don't know, not wanting to be Santa Claus or a twist on the legend or something like that. So you do have movies about Santa Claus that are better than this movie. Miracle on 34th Street, obviously about Santa Claus, but I wouldn't say that's a Santa Claus movie. It's about him, like, proving who he is. He doesn't get to, like, be Santa Claus. You don't get to see him at the North Pole doing all the Santa Claus stuff, delivering presents. Uh, Even stuff like Arthur Christmas is like, here's a twist on how the Santa Claus things work, that it's all these, like, families and they have all these spaceships and stuff like that. Like, like it or not, and unfortunately a lot of people are in the not column. The Santa Claus is the definitive Santa as Santa movie, and it works by taking a real relatable character, everyone's dad in the 90s, and turning him into Santa Claus over the course of the movie. And that's why it's the best movie about Santa Claus being Santa Claus. Uh, And it has all these great heartwarming things that surround that that make it the best. When you are trying to get into the holiday cheer... If that is something you want to do and that is something you like, just kind of sinking into all the gaudiness and all the cheese and all the same songs, but just different covers over and over and over again, which I do, like, you need these kind of warm hugs of Christmas movies. They're kind of like your fuel in the same way that getting into the spooky season is all about watching horror movies and doing these little horror trips and stuff like that. Like, and having a movie about Santa Claus being Santa Claus, like you need, that's like important. And this is that movie. And it makes me feel all the other joy about the season. Uh, Even if the messages are dumb, like uh, it's not seeing is believing, believing is seeing like, it's dumb. It's stupid. But as like Ethan Warren said at the onset of this month, like this is the month to be dumb and stupid and to let those cheesy things that have no application in your real life. And if anything are probably not great, if you try to apply them to your real life to just let them wash over you and to kind of feel like a kid again, believing in stupid stuff. And this movie is about uh, a kid being proven right uh, in the belief that Santa's real, Santa's his dad, and and all the stuff that comes with that as the series goes on. So, I always love watching the first one, and I've just started to, in general, shut off the second one right after the, uh, <laughs> right after the faculty party scene, because after that, it's all North Pole garbage. But, like, that's a perfect ending. He meets the Mrs. Claus. That can be the end of the movie. And that's, a, like, a good little series. So, yeah, those are my final thoughts on the Santa Claus trilogy. I think a lot of people are not going to watch all these movies, but I do recommend you watch, like, the first two. And then if you, like, can get an easy access to the third movie, just watch the last 30 minutes. Yeah, it's not on Netflix anymore. I had to fucking pay and rent it. Like I said, I think the first one is the definitive Santa being Santa movie. And if you have another example, well, we don't have an email address. (laughs) We have a end of year episode coming up. Yep. Come, it should come out on New Year's Day. And that's going to be our best movies of 2017 with Joseph Finn. And, and I'm very excited because we've already recorded that. I, I know it's going to be a great episode. I said this on the It's a Wonderful Life episode. But yeah, this time can be a very alienating or a very lonely time for some people. 
because of your family situation, your work situation, your personal situation, it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter. Like there's there's anything can make you feel alienated from from people at this time of year. There's this sort of demand that's put on you that's entirely unfair that you need to somehow engage with everybody that was your your old enemies, your old friends, and somehow make amends. And you need to connect with people that maybe don't have your best interests in mind, yada, yada. As schmaltzy and as, as sentimental as all this is, like, I, I need to say, like, we are super happy that we have all of you people listening and that... You're not alone this this time of year. You think you're alone, but you're not alone this time of year. And if you're feeling wonderful and exuberant and overflowing with this positive energy of Christmas, pass some of that on to the yeah, people around you. Absolutely. Um, not to get all and, the know, ending of Scrooged, but love someone that needs it. You've got space for it, I think. Yeah, I, I think – and we've tried to highlight that as we go through these movies. Like, this is what Peter and I love. We do love Christmassy. We do love cheese. But, you know – this is this is not always the easiest time for everyone. And recognizing that and being there for people that need you is what this season's all about. So even if you are not – even if you like to get sucked up into it, you need to keep an eye out and, you know, support people that, uh, that this is a really tough time for. So, uh, anyways, I just kind of restated what Peter said worse because I'm tired. But that is true. I believe everything about it. But anyways, uh, yeah. Uh, And then next week, we're doing the best of 2017 with Joseph Finn. Uh, And then uh, because uh, that next episode will not introduce our January month, we're doing another round of uh, dark fantasy, uh, our beautiful dark twisted fantasy. uh, And we are doing Excalibur. Uh, Return to Oz with Andrew Bloom. Fuck. Company of Wolves. Time Bandits. Those are the four. Two of those, a couple of them may have guessed. We don't know. We haven't planned that far in advance, but we know Excalibur is going to be first. We know Andrew Bloom's on Return to Oz, and the other, you know, the other two will figure it out after our 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 eggnog hangover wears off. And I'm very very excited to start another year with Aaron, who I'm incredibly thankful for. And the fact is that our I fourth found... year. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. 2016, right? 17, 18. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's it's a, a friendship that started as something as innocent as just reaching out and being like, maybe this is something, maybe we're buddies, I don't know. Or maybe someone will just reflect how I feel about the world. Like maybe it's maybe it started as an act of narcissism. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Like the beginnings of our relationship were humble and now like I can't imagine my life without doing this show with him like it's 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 it makes me incredibly humbled to think that like uh i just met some random person (laughs) you happen to have all the same interests as me on the not necessarily the other side of the world but on the other side of the country and it it all just worked out and now i like i love you man i love you too buddy uh yeah this is one of the weird the rare examples where the internet is 100 uh, percent good uh <laughs> in that peter i i love you um i'm so excited that we're entering our fourth year doing this together to something that i look forward to every week it's like my own little christmas every tuesday uh and sometimes thursday when we get to record uh i'm very excited for everything that we have planned next year Uh, I think next year is the year that we finally recognize that we don't need to save everything that we ever want to do up 
Uh, and I'm very excited for some of the stuff we're going to get into and some other surprises we have uh, along the way. So uh, it's been a great 2018. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to another great 52 weeks of this podcast. I'm incredibly grateful that we have so many awesome listeners and supporters guests. and guests. Fans. Our guests have been amazing this year. They've been awesome. Yeah. Thank you to everyone yeah, that's this- been on the show. Multiple, pe- multiple people have been on multiple times this year, which is incredible because I sometimes feel like my family gets exhausted hanging out with me more than once a year. So that's for that's fantastic. Yeah, it really is amazing. Uh, it's so it's so fun to be able to talk to a lot of you guys for the first time. And it always feels uh, very natural. And if if anything, the only thing that sucks sometimes is we can't have people on as often as we'd like to. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, as we praise each other for how how much we enjoy talking to each other, we're so glad that people like hearing our conversations, because if not, uh, we would, I don't know, talk less. Through microphones, maybe on the phone, like human beings, like adults. I don't mm. know. That sounds off and weird. Yeah, who talks on the phone? This is basically the only way to talk to your friend is to start a podcast. You can't mm-hmm. call people on the phone. People will be like, why don't you text? But no one's like, hey, instead of recording a podcast, why don't we write a blog together? <laughs> no, it's the only acceptable way to talk to people for long periods of time. Podcasts. Yeah. It is weird, though, that we've, we've figured out a way that our relationship works mostly over recorded conversations. But it's just us getting ready for the future where everything will be recorded. Elf on the shelf. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you in 2019. I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday, Kwanzaa, whatever else you're celebrating or not celebrating this year. We hope you have a great last week of the year. And we'll see you in 2019 the future where we're all going to spend the rest of our lives i keep trying to hit the stop button but <laughs> just all right, keep going bye. i'm done to We Love to Watch, 
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.